2023 at this time. Roll call. Commissioner Bridges is absent. Commissioner Driscoll is running late. Commissioner Gandhi is absent. President Helfon? Present. Thank you. Commissioner O'Connor? Present. Commissioner Safai? Present. And Commissioner Thomas? Present. Thank you. We do have a quorum. I'm sure he wanted to lead the communication. Yes, thank you. Item number two, communications. We welcome the public's participation during public comment periods. There will be an opportunity for general public comment at this meeting after closed session, and there will be an opportunity for comments on each discussion or action item on the agenda. Each comment is limited to two minutes. Public comment will be taken both in person and remotely by call-in. For each item, the board will take public comment first from people attending the meeting in person and then from people attending the meeting remotely. Comments or opportunities to speak during the public comment period are available by phone by calling 415-655-0001, access code 2599-573-8138. Pound and pound again. When connected, you will hear the meeting discussions, but you will be muted and in listening mode only. When your item of interest comes up, press star three to be added to the speaker line. Best practices are to call from a quiet location, speak clearly and slowly, and turn down your TV or radio. Please note that city policies, along with federal, state, and local law, prohibit discriminatory or harassing conduct against city employees and others during public meetings and will not be tolerated. Moreover, public comment is permitted only on matters within the jurisdiction of this meeting body. We thank you for joining us. President Helfon. Thank you. Um, before calling the next item, and in, I'd like to do it in later on the agenda, but I, I do want to have an opening statement to make before we go into closed session. And that's for thanking uh, Supervisor Asha. Safai for leaving the house in order and by taking the gavel and appreciate it. It's been great working with you and hopefully I can fill your shoes. I don't know how big <laughs> Okay, let's, um, Madam Secretary, do you want to call the next item, please? Yes, item number three, closed session. At this time, we will be moving into closed session. Item 3A, public employee performance evaluation. Immediately after closed session 3A, we will be moving into closed session 3B, public employee performance evaluation, and then into closed session 3, investments. We can leave open session at this time and move into closed session. TV, San Francisco Government Television.
SFGovTV, San Francisco Government Television.
SFGovTV, San Francisco Government Television.
SFGovTV, San Francisco Government Television.
Present. President Halfon. Present. Commissioner Driscoll. Present. Thank you. We have a quorum. Thank you. Can we have a motion for, um, in order to vote whether to disclose discussions held in the closed session? So moved. Not to disclose. To not disclose. Is there a second? Second. And, and seconded, moved by Commissioner Driscoll and seconded by a Commissioner Thomas. All those in favor? Aye. Aye. Did you say okay? Those opposed? Okay, no. It's been approved. Um, Madam Secretary, do you want to take in person? I have one person for in person public comment. Is there? Um, we have no in person at the moment. We don't. No, that's for general public comment, I believe. Okay. Is there any? Yes, a callers, if you have not already done so, please press star three to be added to the queue. For those already on hold, please continue to wait until the system indicates that you have been unmuted. Moderator, do we have any callers on the line? Madam Secretary, there are no callers in the queue. Thank you. Hearing no calls, public comment is now closed. Next item, number four, general public comment. Wait, excuse me. All right, I just wanted to, uh, Fred Sanchez, protect our benefits. Tim, I know I remotely welcome you to being a trustee, but I'd like to come in person and uh, welcome you. Uh, we hear nothing but good things about you. I mean, uh, my only concern in public comment right now is just, you know, there's talk about a public bank, you know, and uh, the retirement system is for the members, exclusively for the members. That's the way it's in the charter and everything. And I know it would take probably to amend the charter to try to get access into that. So you would hear about any move like that before I would. So I hope that you understand that not only for myself, but I'm a member of CARA and RECCSC. There's a broad coalition that would totally be opposed for anybody trying to access the retirement system funds. Other than that, thank you. Continue your good work. Thank you. Thank you for your comments. A reminder to any callers to please press star three to be added to the queue. Moderator, do we have any callers on the line? Madam Secretary, there are no callers in the queue. Thank you. Hearing no further callers, public comment is now closed. Madam Secretary, you want to call the next item? Item number five, action item, approval of the minutes of the June 15, 2023 retirement board meeting. Commissioner Driscoll. Move to approve the minutes of the June 15th retirement board meeting. Second. And moved and seconded. All those in favor, aye. What we need public comment before a vote. Please one vote for public comment. 
We have no in-person public comment for this item. A reminder to any callers to press star three to be asked to the queue. Moderator, do we have any callers on the line? Moderator, do we have any callers on the line? Madam Secretary, there are no callers in the queue. Thank you. Hearing no callers, public comment is now closed. Okay. Madam Secretary, you want to call the next item? Item number six. No, now, now we need a vote. We need to vote on the approval of the minutes. Um, Commissioner uh, Thomas made the motion and Commissioner Connell seconded. Can you turn up your mic, darling? I mean. Oh. Is that better? Yeah. Okay, it's been moved and seconded. All those in favor, say aye. 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 Those opposed, nay. The motion passes. Can you call the next item, please? Item number six, action item, consent calendar. Commissioners. Is there a motion to approve the consent calendar? Motion to adopt the consent calendar. Second. Okay. Can we call? Open. Um, we have no in-person public comment on this item. Moderator, do we have any callers on the line? Madam Secretary, there are no callers in the queue. Thank you. Hearing no calls, public comment is now closed. Okay, it's been moved and seconded. All those in favor? Aye. 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 Those opposed? Motion passes. Madam Secretary, you want to call the next item? Item number seven, action item, President's Committee Assignments. Okay, you, um, you have the assignments on that. And does anybody have any comments, complaints, suggestions? Otherwise, this is need a vote. I'd certainly like the concurrence. Everybody good? President Helfand, if I may make a couple comments. Um, so we're embarking on the, this next year of, of committee meetings, and I want to take this opportunity um, uh, to outline uh, how we'll move forward to have a productive year of committee meetings. Um, and, and I'll turn this to some of our ground rules, but these ground rules really are very much outlined in our existing policies, um, which is to say that um, once the the uh, board chairs are determined through this vote, or the, sorry, the committee chairs are determined through this vote, I will work with each of them to get a schedule set up for the year. Committee meetings, as as we have in our policies, will be scheduled on a Wednesday, and I will determine the Wednesday with the the, the chair. We will get those on the calendar for the year, um, and we ask that if for some reason committee members cannot participate, we will reach out two weeks in advance. Um, and if if, um, if if an individual can't come or an individual can't commit, 
do not have quorum two weeks in advance, we will go ahead and cancel the meeting. Um, that will be a, a, an effective use of everybody's time. I hope we aren't canceling meetings, but that's the process that, that we will follow. Um, we will also, um, to the extent uh, that the chair of the committee wants to do so, if we d we're having trouble getting quorum, the chair can reach out to the president or the vice president if they're not on that committee to uh, sit in for that session so that we can continue um, and, and get the business done that, that we need to get done. With respect specifically to the investment committee, um, uh, I think we have a real opportunity here. We have a lot of important things that we need to address this year, including the asset liability study, which requires a lot of deeper discussion. And we want to use the investment committee to be able to talk about topics like that, um, to do education um, and, and talk about investment policy. What um, we are proposing and would like to do is move the annual asset class updates into the board meeting and spread them out over the course of the year so that we're not doing them all at uh, or three at once. That's a lot for the, the, the board to absorb. They're very important topics and they're very board level topics and we can address those there and use the IC for uh, a lot of the deep dives and discussions. So the IC will continue to have an important role, but we're going to modify a, a little and bring some of those some items up to the, the board meeting. Stated, well stated. I just mm -hmm. want to um, um, impress upon everybody that um, for the next year, at least, uh, this president's going to be really, we're going to be efficient in this because we've got a lot of work to do. And it, we've all gotten better over the last year or whatever. We didn't only have to cancel one meeting, I think, because of a lack of a quorum, correct? I think it was a lot. Maybe, maybe two, but. Wants too many, and um, you know this is a commitment we all take when we uh, say yes to go on. The, whether it's you're voted on, elected, or whether you're appointed, it's our responsibility, and um, therefore I can only support what um, our CEO just said. So, yes, um, thanks for that encouragement for us all to attend. I can tell you the way to avoid the embarrassment of having to cancel a meeting is do not call a meeting. That's one. Two, there's other comments in one of the written issues here that there's a problem that was attributed to the year we were changing over because we have a new CEO and a CIO because the former two persons left. That had no, should have had no bearing on the fact that there were no committee meetings called. That's a function of the board's decision to have the meetings, even if we are using an interim CEO or a CIO or their deputy, too. I will make the comment now, if I am the chair of the governance committee, it may be unfortunate that my two committee members are not here today, but I'm not gonna feel bound to Wednesday only if that's one of the other days of the week is the only convenient time that we can get a quorum and a productive meeting. Unless you tell me the law says we can only meet on Wednesdays. Well, um, that is between, uh, That'll be between our, our CEO, CIO, myself, and whoever the board chair is to discuss that, and we'll make it bold by the combination for it. We'll get it done. 
if I may, the objective is to ensure that we have regular committee meetings. And so by suggesting that the starting point is Wednesday, that's something that, that we can generally agree to rather than spending a lot of time to find specific dates that work at an ad hoc basis for members that then get canceled at the last minute. So, so if we need to be flexible, we can, but we will, start, we will begin at the starting point of Wednesday. Operative word is need. I understand when people can rely on one specific date and they block the year out ahead. We all are involved in other things as well. But if I found this is one day, we've had this problem in the last couple of years where certain days are continuously, consistently bad for certain people. I'm going to poll my other members to tell between the three of us and then see if your schedule is more adaptable since you and your team tend to be here five days a week to address what will fit for the governance committee. That's the only one I can address to then funnel any of our actions up to the full board. So I just want letting you and my colleagues on the governance committee know that's how I plan on working in to get a productive meeting as opposed to no meetings. Thank you. The, the goal is shared. Yes. I think that's this, this doesn't need an action and um, Oh, comments are noted and we, we do um, need to actually approve. need an approval. Sorry. We do actually need an approval of the committee assignments. Okay. That should be noted on all right. Uh, move to approve president's committee assignments. Second. All those in favor? Aye. Aye. Those opposed? President Halfon, do we have public comment on this item? Okay. All right. President Halfon, we have one public comment in person. Yeah, just a point of clarity. Is that the first one to the second one today? Or is there, I just want to know if they have specific so that they can help know it's the second Wednesday or whatever. Thank you for your comments. A reminder to any callers to press star three to be added to the queue. Moderator, do we have any callers on the line? Madam Secretary, there are no callers in the queue. Thank you, here are no callers. Public comment is now closed. So now we're gonna take a vote. Before the vote, can I make a comment? Yep. Uh, my understanding is that uh, given how many subcommittees there are, many Wednesdays may be used throughout the month to schedule these committee meetings. Is that correct? Correct. We left some flexibility to make sure it works with it. schedules. Yeah. And, but the goal is to get them on the calendar for the year. So they're established. Thank you. Right. Have a motion. I think we already did that. Um, something. Yeah. Commissioner um, Thomas made the motion and Commissioner Driscoll seconded it. Done it. What? Did we have a vote? We have the vote. That we have was... a vote. I think we need a some favor. Aye. Aye. Those opposed? Thank you. Madam Secretary, you want to call the next item? Item number eight, discussion item, personnel committee report. President Halfond, if you'd like to. Yeah, I'm just wondering what's the pleasure of the board members? Do you want to eat lunch or while we're, we're doing this? 
Okay. We all, everybody will not have a problem with that. Okay. A com personnel committee report has basically been uh, covered, and um, for the sake of order here, um, we have met and went over the um, actuary service director and the um, CEO CIO on uh, performance and um, in with input from all board members. That was um, presented to the board officially, all the results with our, our advisor um, that was presented in closed session. So there's nothing, and I would say parenthetically that we've just discussed some issues that will go back to the personnel committee as to that process and um, further refine it going forward. This is, an, uh, this is not an action item, correct? Okay, so you wanna call the next item? Uh, we have public comment. Uh, we have no in-person public comment for this item. Moderator, do we have any callers on the line? Madam Secretary, there are no callers in the queue. Thank you, hearing no calls, public comment is now closed. Next item, number nine, discussion item, Chief Executive Officer's report. Thank you. Uh, a number of items to go through uh, this afternoon. So um, first you'll notice in the set of materials that there is a uh, travel uh, and education report for the board for the year. Um, per our policies, I'm to provide an annual report of those activities, which I've included uh, in here. That relates to another responsibility that I have, which is to do um, a, buy, uh, a survey every other year, educational needs assessment. Uh, and, and poll board members in, in terms of their educational needs, what they want to learn, and the modalities of that training, and then work with the governance committee to develop an education plan. Um, so I share that with you today because you will be receiving in the coming weeks uh, through email uh, a survey that I've put together to, to start um, getting your, your input. Um, please don't view that survey as you know one and done. We can certainly have a dialogue. I just try to create a, a forum, uh, a consistent um, forum for all of you to, to deliver that feedback. And then we'll have a governance committee meeting to work through the, the needs assessment. You'll also notice in the material, the forward calendar, we've updated this to include the full um, fiscal year. I put in uh, a handful of committee meetings as placeholders. These are topics that we know we have to have on the calendar uh, by policy and process, but we will work to add the remaining committee meetings as we discussed um, previously. Third, um, our process for managing board requests, if we've, as we've talked in prior um, discussions with respect to the governance um, policies, um, requests for work are to come through, through me. And I just wanted to share with all the board members here today, the process going forward for that. If I get a, a, a question that requires a significant amount of work, I may reach back out to the board member that has the question to, to understand the timing uh, and, and the prioritization of that um, and indicate how much time staff it will take so that we can uh, work towards addressing the question but prioritize those questions appropriately. And certainly for topics that require significant amount of work that likely would come back um, before the board. So again, just wanted to share that with you to the extent um, there continue to be uh, questions I may reach out um, with that process. Next, uh, the budget. Um, 
We've had a very successful uh, year in getting critical resources to support our business. Thank you very much to the Operations Oversight Committee and to the entire board for your support to make that happen. Um, with these resources, we will be able to function as a team better. We will be able to serve our members better, and we will be able to move the business forward better. So thank you for your support there. Next on um, military leave, and we talked about this on a prior board meeting, as you know, an ordinance to expand the definition of public service to allow members to purchase service credits for time in, uh, their time in the military. That ordinance passed and is now in effect. The form to apply is available and has been provided to everyone who has asked for it. And the team is working very hard on developing uh, an FAQ uh, for that process. Finally, um, I'm very pleased to announce uh, that we now officially have Wilshire uh, on board and acting as the board's consultant. Um, and as long as it's okay with policy, I wanted to introduce Ali Kazemi and who will introduce the Wilshire team. It records. It does not amplify. So, people so just, yeah. Sounds good. Um, well, first of all, thank you so much. We are thrilled uh, now that we have the contract signed, and, and we're really looking forward to working on behalf of SFERS as your general consultant. Um, it's not just me. Uh, you know, we brought a team um, here for our first meeting. Maybe if they can stand up real quick just to acknowledge my colleagues, Chris, Lauren, Mo, and Tom. Um, we thought it was important for our first meeting to come as a show of force, just to show all of the the people that are going to be supporting this relationship going forward um, and you know from meeting to meeting you'll see various uh, components of the team attend but uh, again thank you so much for the opportunity we're thrilled to be working with you and we look forward to a long and fruitful relationship as are we and that and you gave us a good answer why when you brought you came because we were sitting there wondering why all these people were here I did not have anything else, but I'm happy to answer questions. Okay. One one comment I would really make is uh, thank you and your staff team for getting that budget done. It was it, in these days, that's a monumental task and well done. So, any questions? In case the public markets contract is still under blackout, it has not been closed. Uh, not yet. Okay. Or, yeah. Okay. All right. So, any other comments, questions? Madam Secretary, you have an open uh, You can't. Madam Secretary, your microphone is off. We get this sort of modulated that everybody's. Can you hear me now? Yeah. We have no in-person public comment at the same time. Madam Secretary, there are no callers in the queue. Thank you.
SFGov TV, San Francisco Government Television.
You ready? President Helfand, you may resume open session at this time. Great. Thank you. It's really nice that I can say this. I'd like everybody in the room, we're going to restart the meeting, please. <laughs> All right, Madam Secretary, do you want to call the next item? Which is... Item number 10, right. action item, amend select policies in terms of reference with respect to partial investment delegation. All right. Um, this is, in my mind, this is an important item. So um, everybody who has any questions or comments, we've dealt with a lot of the issues in, uh, in how to go forward in the last meeting or the meeting before that. And um, so I'm going to turn it over to our CIO CEO. Thank you, President Helfand. So um, as you mentioned last meeting, the board approved uh, that we put forward policy changes that align with what we had called option four, partial investment delegation. Uh, that option at a very, very high level uh, is delegating partial investment authority to the CEO, CIO to approve investments uh, and increase funding with existing board approved managers subject to certain limits and also provides uh, authority for terminations. We have put the language of option four as presented in the last meeting into the policies that are in this agenda item. And uh, for the most part, it really is word for word from what we presented to you uh, in the last meeting. Um, there are different ways that organizations document investment delegations to uh, CIO. Given the nature of our documents, the primary document that we are doing this is within the investment policy statement, um, but it required some minor uh, adjustments to the manager selection and termination policy for public markets, uh, as well as the executive director terms of reference and service provider policy. I will note later in the agenda, we have a discussion on absolute return that also has some, some uh, changes to, to some of those policies. We've kept those separate to the extent that the board ultimately approves this agenda item with the changes in that agenda item with the changes, it would be one document, but we wanted to uh, be able to discuss those uh, decisions independently. What we put into policy is only the phase one of the partial investment uh, delegation. Phase two, as we discussed in the last board meeting, would be put onto the forward calendar for discussion um, a, a year from now, uh, obviously uh, subject to change at the board's discretion. Um, and, and so that will be on the forward calendar, but we didn't put that notion of phase two into the investment policy um, because we will just make the changes to the investment policy at that time should the board uh, want to move in that direction. Um, since we discussed this topic so thoroughly, the rationale, uh, the design, and what we put in place to be able to proceed successfully with delegation, I was keeping my comments here brief today and really just wanted to open it up to questions uh, for the board. Okay. Okay. Um, thanks for, uh, it's going to take a while to merge all the concepts into the different documents. And perhaps this question should have been asked uh, when we were discussing it last month. My first concern has to do with when you, when I start to read the, the percentages, I try to convert them into dollars. So when I see that half percent, 1.5%, 2% ranges, uh, the first question then becomes, those are, those percentages relate to the total assets, but then what 
you're focusing on, though, is revenues available for investing. Because we're a net payer, therefore, so much of our income revenue must be used for paying pension benefits. But we have to reinvest or hold that money. So when I just look at the per pure percentages and converting to dollars, it's conceivable that you may inadvertently wind up crossing a target asset allocation. Maybe that was planned and it calls for some judgment because there's ranges around the targets. Um, let me, if it's okay, try and address, and if I misunderstood the question, um, please let me know. So the criteria that we set for, we put limits on uh, what you would partially delegate to us. And if um, an investment were to exceed that limit, then the investment would still become, come before the board for, for approval. We set those limits based on sort of the, the typical size of an investment in each of the, the respective asset classes and with respect to the total fund, because it's not only how is it sized in the asset class, but sort of the risk that it presents to the, the total fund. So there was a lot of thought put into those thresholds. All of that, though, is subject to us still continuing to operate within the asset allocation guardrails that we have in place that we report to you on a regular basis. So it it would not be the case, and let's just take a very extreme example, that we would continue to put money because we had discretion at, at re-upping private equity, and suddenly private equity is hugely overweight because we made that active decision. It all has to be within the IPS and the guardrails that the board has approved. Okay, and maybe when, if I could have mapped out in my head exactly how the IPS reads, how that is subs, subject to that limit. It's just within that limit, you have ranges that you can discretion to invest, whether it's the co-investing limit or moving between managers and multiple strategies. Okay. That's why I thought you meant, but I had to ask the question. That's one. Two, um, this kind of de delegation to staff, then you've always had the discretion to move money away from a manager. Usually it relates because we're disappointed with the manager, but there's now more of an opportunity, let alone funding a new strategy with the same manager or adding more money to the manager besides the limits that are normally asked for and them holding on to everything they earn. But, now this is, but this is a different issue if you decide to tactically add or tactically take away that that's a decision beyond the manager and it's a decision the board doesn't may hear about. My question is that's gotta be a separately, a separate decision to measure. And I think I asked that about when we were interviewing general consultants, because that that's who does a measurement on this issue. So that, that's the issue I'm trying to raise. Okay. Do you see it? Do you th I believe it's worth measuring separately. Because it's a separate buy, hold, sell decision by you and your, your team. Do you agree with that? Yes, I would say to some extent um, we have that capability. Um, we have the authority today to move money between managers, so that's an action that we're already taking, and you can see that in the performance results that we have. You, certainly, you can do detailed attribution analysis to break down the components of, of the, the value add. Um, so I, I think the ability to move money between managers, we, we already had what this delegation gives us a little bit more flexibility is to add beyond the, the maximum amount that the board had approved. My question is not about your ability to do it. 
nor is it about then the authority to do it if we're getting, we've already delegated most recently more and plan to do even more seven. My question is measuring how well you do it. That's what this question is. Yes, and that comes through in an attribution analysis that, that we typically that do. That is not in place yet. With the, I can figure it out with the leverage piece because that's sort of separate and distinct. And there are numbers there to do that. But in terms of the additive to a manager that may be with us for a couple of years, that's a separate decision to measure that time differently. Because I think the way our performance numbers are not time weighted. We can we can take a look and, and evolve our analysis. I would say that funding and defunding decisions aren't aren't only driven on we have confidence in this manager. It, it could be we have liquidity, we need to fund, we're overweight here. Um, so you could actually have a lot of conviction in a manager, but not want to take as much risk and pull. So those types of analyses are more complex than standard attribution analysis, but it's something that we can have a discussion uh, with the team. Uh, obviously, I think it's important to measure if we're going to authorize you even more authority and opportunity to earn greater return. You wouldn't do it if you didn't have believe you could earn a greater return with the convictions about a manager or strategy or an asset class. That's why you did all the work and you brought it before us. But there's this measurement issue to, to justify continuing or adding to it. That's one. My point is while phase two is going to be worked on in the next 12 months. So here's the next part of the question. It's not that Will should probably set up anything and you with your own people can set up any measurement device because that goes follows the whole selection process of a manager or a consultant. I haven't gone and found it yet, but certain almost most corporations and uh, there are actually a couple of pension funds. They call it that anyway. They call them auditing committees and they go in and measure. We're not talking about auditing, you know, how many pencils did we buy, but whether or not to audit that kind of performance is another level below what we're, we currently do. And that's my point. Staff, you guys are constantly monitoring our managers, right? Always. Correct. This type of decision and opportunity to add money, especially when you're adding it to invest more, not simply rebalancing. I think we need to come up with a measurement. And you might say it's so focused that perhaps a board would want an auditing committee because it may be so detailed that it, it's not so much that it will be boring, but I believe it's that important to do it, how to do it, and spend the time and the cost to get it done. That's why I'm leading with all this stuff. I, I appreciate that point. And one thing that I have worked um, with, with the team and we are working, we'll be working on with, with Wilshire and uh, led by uh, Anna on asset allocation and risk is to bring a lot more quantitative measure uh, to, to our process. So this is something that we can, can, can look into as we're enhancing those processes over this year. Okay. Um, I'm glad you're going to look into it because I'm going to look into it too. And I'm going to try to convince my colleagues on the board we need, we must do it. It's not just a nice to know kind of a task. Thank you. Any questions, comments? I just wanted to <clears throat> thank staff for incorporating some of the comments that we uh, provided and feedback last time we reviewed this. I think that this um, slow transition gives us an opportunity to see how things are going 
uh, and have plenty of runway to, to make adjustments and tweaks uh, as we um, as we proceed. Um, but I'm, I'm really excited about this process, and I really appreciate the amount of work and time that was put into uh, developing these options. Here, here. It's been a long time coming, and I'm glad it's on. The, we're going the, down this path. Yep. Okay. Um, without that, uh, this is an action item. Yes. So, um, can I have a motion? Actually, let's be efficient here. And what would what's the what make the motion? What we have on the agenda. <laughs> make a motion to approve the investment policy statement, the manager selection, monitoring, and termination policies, the public markets, and the executive director, meaning CIO, CEO, terms of reference, and service provider policy regarding the dis delegation of investment authority. All right. Second. <laughs> okay, it's been moved by uh, Commissioner Driscoll and seconded by uh, Commissioner O'Connor, and we'll now have some public comment. We have no in-person public comment on this item. A reminder to any callers to press star three to be added to the queue. Moderator, do we have any callers on the line? Madam Secretary, there are no callers in the queue. Thank you. Hearing no calls, public comment is now closed. Okay. Um, the motion's been made and seconded. All those in favor? Aye. Aye. Those opposed? Great. The motion passes. Um, you want to call the next item, please? Item number 11, action item, absolute returns investment guidelines and changes to manager selection, monitoring, and termination policy. Let me just say one thing is that I really appreciate all the work that this is you've got into this. It's a lot of work. A lot of a lot. So if I may uh kick off the, the discussion here today. Um, as the board may recall, in January, um, with your support, we updated the investment policy statements and the guidelines for all the asset classes except absolute return. Over the last month, uh, nine months, I should say, we've done a real deep dive into this asset class. We've dug into the objectives of the portfolio with respect to where we are with the total fund. We've looked at how we construct the portfolio and how we manage risk. Um, I assure you this was a very extensive process, uh, of course, involving the asset class team, uh, but also our, our risk and asset allocation team, external partners, and I was closely uh, involved as well. In my experience, uh, absolute return is a tough asset class to, um, to define, to set objectives, and to um, construct appropriate guardrails. That's what our process was about, and I'm very excited to, to, to see where we've evolved uh, here today. So um, whereas I would say the, the guidelines we presented for the other asset classes in January were a bit 
codifying a, a practice and adding some risk guardrails. Here we really did do a, a deep dive um, to make sure that where we want to go going forward with this asset class, given how the other asset classes have evolved, has evolved, makes sense that we're clear with the board and what those objectives are and that we have a benchmark that aligns with all of those objectives. So with that, I will uh, turn it over to David. Thank you, Allison, and good afternoon, commissioners. Each of you received a large packet of information on absolute return in advance of this meeting. The materials assembled are reflective of work that started almost a year ago, as Allison mentioned, and a continuation of an evolution of the absolute return program that staff has been speaking to you about over the last couple of years. It was staff's intent to present this material at an investment committee meeting on July 12th, so the presentation in the Blackstone memo that you see reflect that date. It would take a long time to go through all of the material. So the purpose of my initial comments will be to distill all of it into several key takeaways, which are largely captured on page two of the presentation. So if we can cue that up. We have it. Yeah. Okay, thank you. <clears throat> First, we've developed a comprehensive framework to clarify the role and objectives of absolute return at SFRS and guide the portfolio construction process. Second, we've updated the guidelines to manage a portfolio within this new framework. And finally, we have analyzed benchmarks and proposed a new primary and secondary benchmark that are most relevant given the role and objectives of the program. The purpose of all of this is to provide more clarity of what we will invest in and why, how we will construct a portfolio, and the risk guardrails and benchmarks that staff will be accountable to. With that in mind, I'd like to provide more details uh, starting on page five of the presentation. James, can you move to that? Please? Absolute return, also commonly referred to as hedge funds, is an area of the investment industry that is complex and hard to define. And as a result, it is sometimes defined by what it is not. Although it is included in many asset allocation mixes, it is really not a standalone asset class, but rather an objective for a set of strategies. Unlike real estate or private equity, 
where investments are based upon more readily defined and sometimes easily observable characteristics, absolute return is based more on the return and risk objectives of the strategies. SPUR seeks enhancement to its risk-adjusted returns of the plan through exposure to the diversifying sources of return that are available across the spectrum of absolute return. An example that SPURS has realized, measured in real terms, is a 50 basis point reduction in plan level annualized volatility since the implementation of the absolute return program in 2016. Next page, please. When SPURS began investing in absolute return, it did not have long short equity exposure anywhere in the plan portfolio, nor did it have a dedicated private credit allocation or a private equity program that was near its current size. As a result, expectations of absolute return were different and most notably the beta tolerance was higher. Fast forward to today, and as the plan portfolio has changed, so too has the risk profile of the plan and the diversifying role of the absolute return program. Page seven. This is a graphic depiction of the evolution which highlights that opportunistic public equity and private credit which did not exist as distinct components of the SPURS portfolio in 2016, today comprise approximately 13% of plan assets. AJ. This is a graphic depiction of the evolution of SPURS absolute return portfolio that has been underway for several years. Specifically, the portfolio has shifted to be less sensitive to the factors that drive performance of SPURS exposure in other asset classes. The three categories on the left are what has been presented to the board in annual updates by staff since April of 2022 and what staff used as a foundation for its proposed portfolio construction framework. Let's go to page 10. As staff has been working to rebalance the absolute return portfolio over the last couple years, the need to improve upon the documentation of program objectives and portfolio construction process and ensure that guidelines and benchmarks were properly aligned with objectives became clear. Importantly, we wanted to bring guidelines current with the program objectives and align them with the management and oversight of other asset classes. Additionally, it was important to ensure appropriate benchmarks were in place that could be supported with qualitative and quantitative analysis. Page 11 has a graphic depiction of the approach followed by staff to create the proposed guidelines included in the packet of materials that were distributed for this meeting. We started with a clarification of high-level objectives and then documented an investment philosophy. This was followed by the definition of the portfolio construction building blocks that we referred to on page eight and identifying appropriate targets and ranges for exposure to these categories. Lastly, staff worked closely with the internal risk management team and external advisors to develop suitable guardrails with risk metrics. On the top of page 12, you see a clarification of SPURS objectives for absolute return in terms of downside risk mitigation, return generation, diversification, and liquidity expectations. The bottom of the page is a proposed quantification of return and risk measurements that are in line with the evolution of SPURS plan portfolio and the role of absolute return. Page 13 denotes high-level elements that will be taken into account in the construction of SPURS absolute return portfolio. These considerations are both qualitative and quantitative in nature, 
incorporate current conditions, near-term expectations, and long-term data, forecasts, and trends. On page 14, staff provides more detail on the building blocks that are proposed for the absolute return portfolio construction process. Absolute return investors utilize many different ways to categorize strategies, managers, and exposures. What may be relative value for one investor can be referred to as macro for another. There are also many exceptions of specific managers and funds that exhibit return and risk characteristics that differ from the norm established by managers and funds that are commonly labeled with that strategy. This is one of the things that makes definition and categorization very difficult um, among this group of strategies. After much analysis, staff concluded that the most effective method for SPURS would be to define a framework via measurable return and risk attributes rather than using nomenclature that is only meaningful for industry practitioners. So we tried to put this into more understandable terms um, that, you know, that we can all, that we are all familiar with. Page 15 reflects a matrix developed by staff, which can be used to place strategies, investment managers, and specific investments into four major categories based on expected risk-adjusted returns and expected diversification benefits. This matrix was presented previously in the absolute return update that staff delivered in April. Each quadrant that you see here identifies return, volatility, diversification, and liquidity characteristics of investments that would be categorized together. Additionally, there are examples provided of common absolute return strategies that SPURS may categorize in each of the four quadrants listed. Although we may include exposure from all four of the quadrants in this matrix, in general, staff will seek to concentrate in diversifier investments with opportunistic allocations to return drivers and risk mitigators. I'll get into some targets and percentages a little bit later. The lower sharp ratio, higher beta strategies like equity long short and event driven will generally be expected to comprise a smaller percentage of the portfolio. However, there are exceptions with some investments that have these attributes, yet also possess attractive return driver, diversifying or risk mitigation characteristics that may be additive to us in the total portfolio context. Absolute return is meant to provide diversification of returns to the overall SPURS plan. As such, some strategies that are valid on their own merits, including those that other investors may categorize as absolute return, but which are already well represented in other parts of the SPURS plan portfolio are unlikely for us to be included, for, for us to include in the portfolio. On page 16, staff provides specific detail on the metrics that will be used to categorize its absolute return investments. Investments will generally be placed into one of these categories based upon their return, beta, volatility, correlation, and liquidity characteristics. In some cases, where managers operate multiple strategies within a fund and the exposure can be quantified in more than one category, a look-through process uh, may be utilized to categorize the exposure more granularly. Finally, staff will measure these metrics over various time periods to provide a more data-driven and non-static approach to categorization. We're not, uh, we're not proposing this to be a 
set it and forget it type of categorization, that it will be more dynamic in nature. Page 17 lays out the target mix and ranges that staff has identified to be most in line with achieving SPUR's absolute return goals. Achieving and maintaining the target mix among categories identified with precision is very difficult, if not impossible. Therefore, allocation ranges are presented, which provide for reasonable flexibility to implement, the ability to move away from midpoint of stated ranges and adapt along with changes in the market environment and opportunity set. For context, the mix of SPUR's current absolute return portfolio is approximately 60% diversifiers, 30% return drivers, and 10% risk mitigators. So we're not terribly far away from those targets at present. Page 18 covers one final point on portfolio construction. SPUR's absolute return portfolio is expected to contain a mix of direct investments, discretionary investments, and co-investments. This is done to strike a balance of in-house investment process and capabilities, the use of external advisors to improve SPUR's ability to tactically respond to rapidly evolving market environments, and co-investments that can benefit SPURS through enhanced returns, reduced fees, and improved alignment with GPs. Please move to page 20. As mentioned earlier, staff followed an approach that started at a high level with defining objectives, philosophy, and then moving more granular to portfolio construction principles, building blocks, ranges, and targets. Completion of this framework involved the enhancement of the absolute return guardrails to provide for alignment with the restated program objectives and more comprehensive monitoring and management of risk. Page 21 through 24 contained the guidelines proposed. Page 21 denotes the risk and beta guidelines for the portfolio. We propose tighter constraints on each of these and this is based on the view that using beta as a measure of sensitivity to equity and fixed income markets and standard deviation as a measure of return stability, the portfolio should have lower metrics for each of these if it is to achieve the desired objectives. So that's the, the rationale for lowering each of these. Note that each of these three metrics reflects a reduction from the current guidelines that are noted in the middle column on this page. Page 22 is a table showing the current liquidity guidelines with no changes proposed. As a general rule, most of SPUR's absolute return investments will have liquidity terms that contribute favorably to its functioning as a secondary source of liquidity for the SPUR's plan. But the program will include some exposure to illiquid investments if they provide risk-adjusted returns and or diversification benefits. Staff have returned over 500 million of capital from the absolute return portfolio back to the plan in fiscal 23 and are managing to a schedule that will return the same amount back in fiscal 24. Staff also maintains a model for more extreme liquidity scenarios, more stressed environments, and therefore does not see the need to modify the existing guidelines. On page 23, we reflect two new risk guardrails, which are included in the proposed guidelines as a result of much discussion and collaboration with the SPURS in-house risk management team. These guidelines are intended to help ensure that the total portfolio 
remain on track with its diversification and risk mitigation objectives. On page 24, we list out several concentration and exposure-related guidelines that staff has adhered to since the inception of the program. And similar to the liquidity guidelines, staff believes that there is no need for modifying these at this time. Finally, included with the materials for this agenda item were both a clean and red line version of proposed manager selection, monitoring, and termination policy for public markets and absolute return. The proposed changes that you see highlighted in the red line reflect minor edits that will allow for the existing policy approved for public markets to also apply for absolute return. Staff is recommending for board approval and implementation effective July 1st of 2023, the following items. Proposed investment guidelines for absolute return, proposed manager selection monitoring and termination policy, public markets and absolute return. We have representatives of Blackstone in attendance virtually today, should the board wish to address any questions to them. This concludes my comments on this item. Uh, so I'll pause here to address any questions that the board may have for staff or Blackstone. Well presented, thank you. Questions, commissioners? Do I wanna start? I have a couple of questions. I'm not sure exactly where to start. <clears throat> but I'm trying to understand in part, you were driven to do all this um, over a year ago for a bunch of other reasons that were going on in the whole portfolio. Um, obviously, I'm just trying to figure out to start if our expectation to go T-bill plus five versus T-bill plus three, were we being unrealistic? Or the fact that both two of the other asset classes got more sophisticated, like adding long short to equity. And I think maybe there's some long short in the debt, but then uh, the whole credit, uh, private credit asset class wasn't even here when we started doing this. It maybe our risk total, our risk portfolio, our risk profile changed enough that maybe we don't need to shoot for TBL plus five. I don't understand what drove us to this lower rate of return expectation. Do you want to address that Just now? Just from a procedural pers uh, perspective, we have a, a separate and uh, agenda item voting on the the, the benchmark. Um, however, benchmark is separate. I'm ready for a separate question. But they're, they're they're all integrated. But um, we started with the core principle of what is the objective of the the absolute return asset class in the context of where we are with the fund today. And so most simplistically, that means I don't need long only equity and I do not need private credit in this asset class. And with that in mind, when you look at the, the expected return, if you're not getting the equity beta, the return will come, come down, but you have the added diversity uh, benefits. So what we're trying to do is align the objectives of the asset class with the return expectation and then ultimately with the benchmark. Okay, so let me ask the same issue this way. Um, normally, we, we're always trying to figure out how to make more money, higher return. You might say that's a normal first shot. 
But at the same point about risks, a better risk rate of return, which is discussed in here. And I think it's in one of those, we have the X and Y quadrants. Okay. Therefore, is it fair or wise to give up some return to get better diversification? Uh, let me ask you this way. Is it better to be more efficient or more effective? So, so when the asset allocation to absolute return was set uh, before I, I was here, but the objective of an absolute return asset class is to uh, provide some some downside protection, but do so in a way that generates return more than than fixed income. So you you do not have access to the same growth access. Um, sorry, the the growth assets, but it comes at an ability to have flexibility when, for instance, equity markets are down and we either need liquidity or we can still generate returns. So there is absolutely value from a total portfolio construction perspective to have absolute return as part of the, the portfolio. What we want to make sure is that we what we put into that asset class is meets that objective. And I think putting these guardrails in allow that if we have what's called absolute return is equity or private credit, then it won't it won't protect on the downside, and and I think that ultimately would negatively impact returns. And, and I would just add to answer your question, Commissioner, uh, the the purpose is both to be both effective and efficient. And I think we're our our goal is to to be effective at the total plan level with an allocation to absolute return. Um, in that it provides some downside risk mitigation, um, provides that diversification, and functions as a as a bit of a ballast when equity markets and fixed income markets are not delivering. And through some of the, the changes that have occurred in some of the other asset classes over the last seven years since we started investing in absolute return, we've we've enhanced the growth sensitivity of the portfolio. We've we've increased the allocation to up to uh, to private equity. Um, we have we have made changes to the public markets equity portfolio, and those are those are things that we have to be conscious of as we think about how to most efficiently use the capital that is allocated to absolute absolute return. And so that's what we're trying to do here is is you know figure out how to to most efficiently effectively you know utilize capital that is allocated to absolute return to assist. To, to make the total plan portfolio better, um, to still earn a, a, you know, a reasonable rate of return, but importantly, provide downside risk mitigation when those other asset classes are not delivering. Okay, then perhaps uh, we should consider raising our expectation for what we think our private credit or our equity portfolio are doing since we're now recognizing that we're taking more risk there. We can take more risk there because we've decided how to manage risk better, not better, but how we're going to utilize our absolute return portfolio, deciding we'll, we're willing to accept a slightly lower rate of return, but we're, we're more, we need the equal benefit of decreasing risk, decreasing volatility. It sounds like I'm trying to put words at what you're saying into so I'm saying so I understand it, but I'm trying to turn it around. They'll go this way. The debate that goes on all the time about which point we pick on the efficient frontier. 
because we could always go up the market line, not on the frontier. But again, it always comes back to what is the reasonable rate of return we're using to discount prices. Believe it or not, it ties into the supplemental COLA and things like that. So that's what I'm trying to find out why we were, why we were making a change. In other words, lowering my expectations of 200 points on 10% of the portfolio. Does it make sense? Well, if you're trying to tell us we have a much, it's all probability, much better odds of hitting our assumed rate of return doing this way, that degree of efficiency is worth, is paying for it. It's worth paying for it. Yes, and certainly we will be going through over the course of the year based on where the markets are in capital market assumptions, uh, asset liability study and asset allocation study. And, and, and for every asset class, we will be assessing the, the expectations and risk and return and, and looking at, at uh, efficient frontiers. Um, but what I would say, and again, um, I, I can't speak to conversations that had been in, here in the past, but I think what we're trying to say is when you do an asset allocation study, you make certain assumptions about what the uh, absolute return portfolio is supposed to add in terms of return and risk. We want to make sure what we put in this asset class reflects what was considered previously when we did that asset allocation study. And importantly, when we go forward and do the asset allocation study, that we model out this objective cleanly so we can appropriately assize the asset class. No, plus three may be a fair expectation if we're going to say do less of this than that, which will come up in a either on the next benchmark discussion or in a moment when I ask a totally different question. But anyway, let's say I, I get your answer. Thank you. But I want to ask you another a question. It goes to your page 23. The first box, the contribution to total portfolio risk of from any factor. Can you just explain that one? That one, I'm not sure what that means because yeah. it ties into the total portfolio, right? We and we we uh, we spent a lot of time on these two, um, <clears throat> and I may may ask Anna to be prepared to uh, to reinforce whatever comments I make. But you know what, uh, where we started with uh, was really thinking about again going back to the the objective um, for our allocation to absolute return is to provide diversification, and we know that we have uh, a lot of factor sensitivity in some of the other asset classes, particularly with, um, with you know, our, uh, our decisions to overweight certain things like tech, biotech, healthcare, and historically China, um, that we have, we have a lot of sensitivities to some of those factors. And what we wanted to do was in rewriting the guidelines, make sure that we have something codified within absolute return where we build in more of a consciousness of that diversification goal. And in doing that, have something that, uh, that is a defined measurable metric that we can monitor on a regular basis, on a monthly basis, um, to make sure that we are not bringing in that additional, additional sensitivity through this allocation that just piles on more sensitivity to some of the other factors that we already have a lot of in the plan portfolio. Uh, so we, we have, we've already gone through and assessed a number of different ways in which we can, um, can, you know, do run analytics to identify this. Um, and we have, we have several ways in which we, in which we can do this. Um, but it, it does include some, you know, common traditional market 
index factors that we will look at, as well as some, you know, more, uh, you know, less less conventional uh, type of factors in order to to make sure that we are continuing to strive for that diversification benefit. Okay. Were you doing this two years ago? Um, I would say we we had we we had access to the tools and we were we were doing it, we were assessing it, but we were not as systematic in our approach to doing it as we are going to be going forward. Okay. In terms of the other asset classes, have you been doing that with the other classes or is this new as sort of as well? So I, I would say this is loosely comparable to some of the risk factor guardrails that we put into the other asset classes that you approved in January. And again, to be a little overly simplistic here, you can think of, so for equities, I don't want to take all of my risk by only being in one country or only being in one sector. In some respects, this is the equivalent in absolute return. I don't want all of my risk to come from credit or all of my risk to come from equities. And it's hard, a little harder to define that in absolute return, but this is to put the same discipline in this asset class as we have in the, the other asset classes. Okay, that part is good. It's a word, it's a combination of the word total portfolio risk and the factors, because many different factors, right? I want to get back to the total portfolio <clears throat> number. That's actually the more important part of the question, but only because the issue of factors has come up as one of the points of why we hired Wilshire, because they consider more factors when they're doing helping their clients make asset allocation, if I remember their answer correctly, when the gentleman actually spoke to that point. Okay, that, that's important. Because we never, we never actually, the board has never spoke that way. Maybe you guys always did it when you came up with recommendations. It is part of the evolution, uh, I think, uh, of wh where we're trying to go to have qualitative and quantitative assessment of risk. Okay, so then when you say total, how is total portfolio risk defined? That could mean a lot of different things to me. So why don't you explain to me? Yep. What you, let me what you let mean. me clarify because there there is in the actual guidelines document um, there is a, a very specific footnote that defines this, but it's not included on on page twenty three of the PowerPoint. Total portfolio risk here is absolute return portfolio. So contribution we're measuring and we are holding ourselves accountable to a guideline of 30% and we'll be, we'll be assessing monthly to determine and make sure that, uh, the, that there is no single factor that contributes greater than 30% to the total absolute return portfolio. So that that's what that means. And when you say risk, you do not necessarily mean you do or you do not mean, or you do or do not include volatility. Volatility is one. It's one factor. That's why I want to. Yeah. That one, that's the easy one to understand when yeah. you say it this way. But is there when you say total portfolio risk, you're talking about more than just volatility. There, are, there are, I mean, almost an infinite amount of factors that you could use, but. There, volatility is one. There are there are various measures of volatility. Um, you know, ec, there are, there are many different measures of equity factor risk. But what are you using? You're aggregating and using one tool to come up with that. We're we're using multiple. We're using multiple factors. So when you say total portfolio risk, it's some some of all the factors, right? Um, it is not the it is not the sum of all of those. What factors. is it then? Don't hesitate to ask yeah. uh, Anna to yeah. jump in here. You know, yeah, Anna, feel free to chime in. So, 
absolutely that the total portfolio risk in this context refers to absolute return portfolio. The risk in this uh, here, in here is referring most of the time to volatility estimate for the absolute return portfolio. This is why, and then we look at the decomposition of this total portfolio risk, how much of the, of, of, for each factor and contribution for each factor, how much comes from one sector or one country or equity or credit and et cetera. And no, and no factor should contribute more than 30%. This is volatility. We absolutely hear you that there's a, we should be looking at other parts, other types of volatility um, uh, risk measurements. And that's why we have a second uh, parameter where we look at the drawdown. And that is a measure of tail risk. Right. So the risk here is measured by volatility using a risk system that then decompose into different factor contribution uh, for the volatility estimate of absolute return portfolio. The second parameter looks at the drawdown expectation, which is a tail risk measure of the of also absolute return portfolio. Right. The drawdown part is easy. Now that I understand is the contribution to the total absolute return portfolio from one factor. That took, it took a while for that to come through. That you're talking about that. Then I assume there is a parallel in terms of when you assemble all your asset classes for the Absolutely. total portfolio. Yes. Okay, yes. great. That's what we will be bringing with. Thanks very much. I'll wait for the benchmark study to come up, answer because of the 60-20-20 here is coincidental to the 60-20-20 for the benchmark. How you, the way you go mitigate a risk factor, but you grab three of the different subcategories in the HFMRI yeah. to represent that. It's it's not it's not totally coincidental. But, I mean, it's we, not totally, but yeah, we've. When the benchmark discussion comes up, I'll ask yeah, that question. Yeah. But and yeah. this explanation for this part is great. Thank you. Okay. So if there are no further questions, I think we need a motion, right, to accept these. Any questions? Any more questions? Okay. Great. Thank you for that. And um, we're going to have a we'll have a motion. To approve. Uh, move to uh, adopt proposed changes to the investment guidelines for absolute return and manager selection monitoring and termination policy. Second. Then move and second. Do you want to have to call public comment, please? Thank you. We have no in-person public comment on this item. Moderator, do we have any callers on the line? Madam Secretary, there are no callers in the queue. Thank you. Here are no calls. Public comment is now closed. Okay. It's been, we have a motion that's been made by um, President Thomas, I mean, Commissioner Thomas, and seconded by Commissioner Driscoll. All those in favor? Aye. 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 All those opposed? Motion passes. Thank you. I'm going to call item number 13. Item number 12. Oh, right. Action item, absolute return benchmark proposed changes. 
And just one sentence to tee this off. I think you've seen a theme here. There was a lot of rigor in this process and there was a rigorous analysis of the benchmark, but we did not start with what is the benchmark. We started with the other agenda item, which is what is the objective of the asset class? How are we gonna construct it? The purpose of this discussion now is how are we gonna benchmark it based on what our objectives are? Great, and similar to the guidelines, it was staff's intent to present this at an investment committee meeting on the 12th. So the presentation reflects that date. Um, but James, let's go to page two. Uh, just as we presented with the guidelines, staff is proposing changes to the absolute return benchmarks to better align these measurements with the evolution of this first plan and the absolute return program. The benchmarks selected at the inception of the absolute return program were chosen with an expectation that it would benefit from having a significant amount of equity and credit beta. In the last couple of years, the needs of the plan have shifted such that the program now functions as more of a ballast to this first plan that also seeks to minimize directional market risk. This was a positive change that recognizes some of the unique benefits of having an absolute return allocation. However, given this transition, a revision to these benchmarks is also warranted. And the change in the program benchmark is largely driven by one, a reduction of the overall SPURS plan investment risk due to the improved plan funded status, and two, increased allocations to private credit and equity long short in other areas of the plan portfolio. Let's move to page three. In evaluating the absolute return benchmarks, Staff started by reviewing the core CFA Institute principles to answer the question, what is a quality benchmark? The current primary benchmark was unambiguous, investable, measurable, and specified in advance, but where it was lacking was in being appropriate, reflective, and owned relative to the current investment approach, process, and style. The proposed T-bills plus three benchmark is a fit with the style of staff and its advisors in managing the portfolio. It also matches the investment approach and the philosophy that is documented on the guidelines that were discussed earlier. Lastly, it is connected to and woven into the framework of the absolute return program. Page four. Staff's analysis included a comprehensive review of SFIRS portfolio data as well as industry data on peer portfolios and various hedge fund benchmarks. Clear observations were that the current primary benchmark of T-bills plus 5% was a high outlier and notably high relative to the primary objectives of the program. Additionally, analysis of the existing secondary HFRI fund-to-fund benchmark showed that it contains significantly more credit and equity exposure and beta that which was implied by the diversification then which was implied by the diversification objectives that we have for the SFIRS absolute return portfolio. In addition to statistical analysis, staff sought to ascertain the common practices of its advisors and research providers. What we found was that advisors and consultants generally construct portfolios with a mandate similar to the SFIRS current absolute return goals which have low beta, low correlation, and downside risk mitigation characteristics to a T-bills plus 3% return target, 
rather than T-bills plus 5%. Staff also obtained information on the expectations from numerous peers as a sanity check on their research, which corroborated the T-bills plus 3% measure. As a result of this review, staff is proposing the benchmark changes you see delineated on page five. These benchmarks are better aligned with investment objectives, provide for more effective portfolio construction, can be supported with a multitude of data, and are consistent with industry approaches. Page six of the material summarizes the results of staff's collaboration with advisors, consultants, and research providers with respect to the proposed primary benchmark. In summary, there is a consensus that the T-Bills plus three benchmark is more suitable for what SPURS is seeking from absolute return. On page seven, it's noted that a historical quantitative analysis performed by staff on the proposed 60-20-20 mix of portfolio construction building blocks would have yielded returns consistent with a T-Bills plus three measure. On page eight of the materials, we summarize the results of staff's collaboration with advisors, consultants, and research providers with respect to the proposed secondary benchmark. In summary, there is substantial support for the use of this benchmark as being more appropriate and reflective of SFER's investment style and investment approach. Finally, on page nine, several additional points are cited in support of the new secondary blended HFRI benchmark. Most notably, the current HFRI fund-to-fund benchmark that is used is a mismatch given the managers that it includes based on the strategy and the size of the organizations. Additionally, blended benchmarks are currently being used elsewhere within this first plan in measuring the real assets portfolio. So there is a precedent for this type of blended benchmark. Lastly, the blended benchmark is a much more relevant match for the expected return and risk characteristics of the SPURS absolute return portfolio, and therefore a more appropriate benchmark choice to be used in measuring value added through things like portfolio construction and manager selection, as well as for plan level asset allocation analysis. Staff is recommending the board approve a change to the absolute return primary benchmark from 90 day UST bills plus 5% to 90-day UST bills plus 3%, and a change to the absolute return secondary benchmark from the HFRI fund-to-funds composite to a weighted blend of 60% HFRI macro, 20% HFRI relative value, and 20% HFRI equity hedge strategy indices to be effective July 1st of 2023, consistent with the start of the new fiscal year and for ease of reporting. Included with the materials that were submitted for this agenda item is a memo dated May 18th of 2023 addressed to the retirement board from NEPC, who served as the general investment consultant to SPURS board and staff uh, through June 30th. This memo supports staff's recommendation to change the primary and secondary absolute return benchmarks uh, to those metrics noted. This concludes staff's prepared remarks on this item. I'll pause here and address any board member questions. Thank you again. Again, excellent presentation. Questions? Okay, let me do the, the two easy ones. Um, if you just said it, I'd missed it. Why the, the HFI equity hedge 
and the relative value, they seem to be the 2020s, why those were picked to represent the mitigating at the core, but the third, you had three categories for the 60, 20, 20, and you had the three. So just why did, did those two basically represent how the definitions of the mitigation group? Yeah, we, ha we have a, a pretty complex statistical analysis that we completed in order to arrive at that. I'm going to, I'm going to give James an opportunity to, to, to speak to that because he really, he led up that effort. Um, thank you. I would say I, collaborated with honest team very heavily on that, but, um, if we did, am, is my mic on? No. Oh. There you go. Okay. Um, so in collaboration with the, um, risk and allocation team, um, we looked at historical returns in these databases, the HFRI, and we did a principal component analysis, which simply means we looked for which, indices of the many indices offered by HFRI, we could use to model most of the variation in the entire universe. So, you know, which of the indices explained most of the others. Um, so we were able to explain most of the variation with these three indices. Um, and then we had an economic intuition that this connected to what we were thinking about in terms of having a core group, a return driver group, and a, and a diversifier group. So that was nice that it sewed up together. Um, but they actually, both insights came from different directions. One insight was from how do we, in practice, put the portfolio together to achieve our goals? And the other was looking at the returns of hedge funds, which is the majority of the uh, strategies that we look at, um, you know, what's really possible um, and arrive back at the same place. So that's always compelling when that happens. Okay. Well, the usual uh, cautions are to understand this area is not really an asset class. Uh, therefore, the standard measurements are difficult. But then if there could be a huge diversion based on the portfolio versus this benchmark. It could occur because of how they just operate. Right. Well, our analysis, we, we used uh, pro forma portfolios to try and analyze, analyze how well this benchmark would have worked. And um, the results were pretty positive. Okay. Will, the fact that you currently, uh, Dave, you, let's get this way. Will this benchmark be used on Blackstone as well? Just measure them against that, as well as your direct portfolio? Correct. Correct. Um, with, the, with the guidelines that were that were just approved, we will update um, our uh, the governing documents that uh, preside over our strategic partnership with Blackstone to reflect those guidelines as well as the benchmark. Okay. Now, the way the categories are now, and I use the word category, not strategy, right? Mm -hmm. The weights, the range of the weights that you're allowed to invest in, are we changing that at all based on how I want to say sort of the word more focused or how you're complementing the other port, the other asset classes. But you still need that range for all of those categories. What will prevail going forward are the guidelines that the board just approved. So that that is what will prevail. And we will use those building blocks and we will use those categories in construction of the portfolio. The the guidelines that you are referring to and the 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 previous uh guidelines where there were eight categories uh, uh eight sub strategies 
equities, credit, uh, emerging markets, macro, special situations, multi-strategy, um, quant, and I'm maybe forgetting one. Um, that, that's just a different way of categorizing exposure. This is not what, what we talked about with the guidelines and what we we're talking about here with the benchmark is not to say in any way that we will no longer invest in any of those categories. We will. We will evaluate the entire universe of absolute return, but for our purposes of portfolio construction, we are not going to approach it from that you know, top-down uh, top type of lens, putting things into eight different categories. We're going to use the, you know, the building block approach that we highlighted in, our, in the guidelines that were just approved. So in terms of a risk management point of view, meaning monitoring you, those will be the guardrails that you have to observe. That's right. That's right. And they, there's, so there's a, there's a smaller number of building blocks. The ranges are also uh, a bit narrower than they were historically. And a certain strategy can actually cross categories or certain managers cross categories differently the way they've structured their yep. strategy. Okay. That's got to look. We learned to live with that. Now, here's the question I want to understand the way it was written. I couldn't find the words, but you just said it, that you believe, gosh, because our funding level has risen, that has helped reduce our risk. Remember exactly how you said it? I don't want to misquote you. Um, it was written in one of the documents I read. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what, I, what I said was that's, that's part of the reason for us adjusting the benchmark is one of the drivers for revising the benchmark is that the, the overall plan funding level has improved yes. and Add that to the word risk. And therefore, as a result, um, the plan risk profile is adjusted, which is part of the substantiation for recommending a new benchmark. Which risk? Is it reduce our risk profile again we hundreds of risk which risk are you talking about or risks well i i think it prob probably vol volatility um would be would be would certainly be one um allison do you have anything you want to add to that yes it's ultimately a way to bring down volatility provide downside protection and importantly maintain uh, another source of liquidity so that we can meet our liquidity needs Okay, well, I'll find where I read it. You said it, and obviously it's recorded. Uh, it's a very important statement. I, I don't know if it's being misunderstood, meaning I may be misunderstanding what you said, or we're attributing the reduction to risk to the wrong reason. Much like insurance companies, when they get to more a higher funding level, they can take less risk. If that's what we're doing, fine, but it's sort of a positive result from something you were trying to do as opposed to well, again, I, yeah, and and again, I, I want to I want to connect this back to the guidelines. So, you know, what the board just approved in the guidelines that we presented was a pretty significant reduction in the target risk as measured by volatility. So, previously, it was uh, uh, less than seven percent. We're going to less than five percent as measured by the annualized standard deviation. So, that's a pretty significant reduction, and it's 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 unrealistic to think that you can achieve the same level of return for at a at a reduction in risk of that amount and so this this is just trying to keep everything rhyming and 
you know, aligned. And we, we have, we've, we're adjusting our proposed primary benchmark in part because we've recognized that the role for absolute return is going to be one of, of more of a risk mitigator and not taking as much risk, not having as high of a beta profile in some of these areas where when we started investing in this area in 2016, we were more comfortable with it. Okay. I would understand it as we took a greater risk, meaning greater market risks, greater illiquidity risk, and it's worked out for us. Therefore, we, we now are able to say we can take less risk, meaning more liquid markets or less volatile markets and take chances where we think something really hot. So I just, the way it was phrased, I think it's, I just would have said it a little differently to understand it better. Anyway, thanks, Dave. Thanks for the answers to the questions. Uh, yeah, thank you for the presentation. Appreciate it. Um, and I apologize if some of my questions have you rehashed a little bit of it up, but it was, I was definitely trying to keep up here. Some, I want, I was curious a little bit about, uh, how you did some of the research in com comparison to peer in industry peers. Um, I saw that you've done some surveys, but I was wondering if you can kind of unpack some more of the research you did in comparing the proposal to what our industry peers are doing. Yeah, we, we did. We, um, you know, through, through our network of, of uh, other plant sponsors, you know, we reached out when we started doing this work really last summer. Um, and and we, we found uh, one of our um, public plant peers in particular who went through a similar exercise and uh, and surveyed a bunch of public plans, uh, large public plans that that also had material allocations to absolute return, and assessed some of the, the the benchmark practices as well as the objectives that they had for their absolute return programs. That was very useful. Um, we validated that information independently, um, and and that's where we we reached some of the conclusions that uh, that I referenced in my comments where that the, the, the T plus five was definitely an outlier um, and was, was, was really the highest, uh, the highest T-bills oriented benchmark um, of any of the, the peers surveyed in that group um, and you know, was, was definitely an, an outlier. Then as we, as we worked together with other industry consultants and advisors to see what many of their clients were doing, some who were not included in, uh, in the public plans that we connected with, um, and also, also found that it was really not consistent with the, the diversification, the downside risk mitigating objectives that we are going to set for the, for the plan going forward. Thank you. Um, in, in the course of your research, is, were you, how common was it for some of our peer organizations to also have the similar sort of blended objectives, the absolute return and the liquidity objective we have? Is that a common thing that we also see with some of our peer organizations and their absolute return mandates, or and, is that different? Anecdotally, I would say yes. Um, um, I think it's become more of an issue because a, a lot of our public plan peers are experiencing some of the same things that we are with their allocations to private markets. You know, those uh, those allocations have grown. Um, other plan sponsors have increased their targets, um, and they're they're dealing with the same market dynamics that we are. That uh, distributions have have slowed down. Um, you know, as a result of of uh, what's happening with the IPO market. Um, but 
the pace of capital calls continues and you have to keep these, continue to fund these, these programs. And so then uh, just like we are, our peers are, are reaching to other asset classes in order to, to find a source for liquidity. So I, I don't know that it's to the same degree uh, that, that we are, but, but it's pretty common. Yeah, I, I would say because Spurs has um, invested more in private markets, there probably is more of an eye towards absolute return if necessary to raise liquidity, whereas the plans that have more in the public equity market or fixed income um, may tap absolute return, but that is not at all a primary source. And I'd also say that absolute return from fund to fund really differs. Um, so in some cases, it's a catch-all uh, for things that don't fit elsewhere, sometimes you may have elements of private credit because you don't have a private credit asset class. So um, when you look at peers, you really need to understand how those peers structure and what their objectives are. Um, but even when you take into account all those different objectives, the, the prior, our prior benchmark was at the high end of, of what all the peers uh, use. It, just just in, in closing on that question, um, I, I think what we are doing in terms of monitoring liquidity, managing to a liquidity profile for our absolute return portfolio, and having a very specific cash forecast that we adhere to for bringing cash back, sweeping cash back to the plan to, you know, to reinforce the cash balance that we have to meet those capital calls and pay member benefits is a little bit unique. Um, most of most of our peers are not managing it to that level, um, but you know it, it's probably you know unique because of a number of things with our total plan construction. So, so given that, then what drew us to aligning our benchmarks closer to our peers if we're sort of an outlier in terms of the goals that we're setting? Well, it's the the uh, the object the the return and risk objectives are similar and. You know, one of one of the things that is actually helps us is that the 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 way in which we've clarified our return and risk objectives, and the the strategies that are more suitable for us to be investing to meet those return and risk objectives, coincidentally and conveniently, also are generally more liquid. So it it you know it's it's a it's a little bit of a it's fortuitous in a way that, um, you know, the nature of a lot of these strategies provides for that. So, you know, while, while moving um, to a, you know, to, to objectives that are more focused on that diversification, downside risk protection, lower sensitivity to equity and fixed income markets, we also find that those strategies commonly have a more liquid profile, wherein they have monthly, quarterly liquidity, shorter lockups uh, relative to, you know, some of the other strategies um, that, that do not, that we, we historically had greater exposure to. Thank you. And if I could just, it's important to make a point. Our decision to move the benchmark um, started with a rigorous quantitative analysis based on the risk and return objectives that we have, historical performance of, of, of assets that meet those criteria. That's what drove the, the benchmark selection 
then we looked at what peers did to say, you know, is it consistent? Are we out of line? It, it wasn't, well, what are peers doing? They're lower, so we're going to lower it. It was a, a data point to supplement the work. Thank you. Okay. Any further questions? All right. Thank you for the presentations. And uh, we'll need a motion to approve. I move to approve the absolute returns investment guidelines in management selection, monitoring, and termination. Is that the policy or is that the benchmark one? That was the last. The last Sorry, one. I was reading the wrong one. To review and approve the correction. Review and approve the proposed change to the absolute return benchmark. Second. Okay, it's been moved by Commissioner Driscoll, seconded by. Commissioner O'Connor and um, take public comment. We have no in-person public comment on this item. A reminder to callers to press star three to be added to the queue. Moderator, do we have any callers on the line? Madam Secretary, there are no callers in the queue. Thank you, hearing no callers, public comment is now closed. Okay, all those in favor? Aye. 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 All those opposed? Motion passes. Thank you. To Thank you. Your team. I mean, it was informative, educational. How many definitions have we heard of absolute return? Still investing in strategies, but we've never had Chinese. We. We started doing it. Guess what? That's true. Life. Okay, Madam Chairman, Secretary, Madam Chairman, you're you're promoted. Um, you're item next, number Madam. thirteen, discussion item, private credit update. Awesome. You're going to wait off. I think our team is just getting set up okay. or we'll kick it off. Okay. Want me to start? Good afternoon, commissioners. You can relax. We're not we're not making any recommendations. This is just a discussion item. Um, but before we begin, I'll provide a little bit of context uh, for for each of you. The last several items we've talked about or that preceded this uh, focus on changes to our IPS. And as you know, the IPS or the investment policy statement is the framework 
for the management of the trust's assets. Uh, one of the requirements of the IPS is that each of SPUR's six asset classes provide an annual update to the board. We provided updates for our public equity, fixed income, uh, absolute return portfolios back in April. Today, we're going to review our private credit portfolio, and our intent is to do or provide updates for our private equity and real assets portfolio in, in August. The format for these are generally the same. As you know, staff will provide an overview of each portfolio's performance, composition within, and initiatives uh, for the next year. And Cambridge will provide their, their views of the, uh, the landscape, in this case, private credit. And then we'll turn it back to the board for questions. But I would encourage, and I would encourage you to ask questions, not only at the end, but feel free to interrupt us. This is your one opportunity annually to kind of embrace and understand the, the drivers and the composition of, of specific asset classes, and in this case, private credit. Um, so with that said, I wanna reintroduce our private credit team to you. As you may recall, Henry Toothman joined us uh, at the beginning of this year from Summit Trail Advisors, where he was a senior investment associate. He, uh, prior to joining Summit Trail, he worked uh, had, or had investment roles at both Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley. Next is Brady Jewett. Brady uh, is joining us remotely as a reminder that COVID is still a thing. Um, sorry to hear, Brady, wish you could join us. Brady joined the private credit team as an associate portfolio manager at the beginning of January uh, 2022. He joins FERS, however, at the beginning of 2021 as an analyst working in our asset allocation and risk management group. And he joined us from UC Regents. And of course, our private credit uh, effort is led by Eunice McHugh. Eunice joined in, let me get it wrong, 2013, yeah. uh, as an analyst in our fixed income group. She was promoted to a senior portfolio manager overseeing fixed income in 2014, where she held that role until SPURS approved uh, a formal allocation to private credit in 2017, where she's overseen the portfolio ever since. And she was promoted to a director uh, of private credit in 2022. Um, but before we dive, Eunice and I dive into a review of the portfolio, I want to acknowledge what this team and Eunice in particular have accomplished in private equity and there was, or private credit rather. There was a discussion just now about the changes to our absolute return program, given some of the evolution in our private equity, or sorry, public equity portfolio and the growth of our private credit portfolio, which has grown from scratch, from nothing in 2017 to almost 8% of its assets. Um, and there was a variety of reasons for the board to approve or, or for staff to recommend the board to approve a commitment to private credit. It is a brand new asset class, really. It really stems from the global financial crisis and withdrawal of banks globally to providing credit to companies, consumers, and even governments. Uh, it was, it was a, a, a timely uh, recommendation, um, and our experience has been quite strong. But what I think we all failed to re recognize in 2017 is just how complicated of an asset class or resource intensive, this is to introduce, unlike private equity where the horizons may be out 10 years, 12 years, 14 years, these are much shorter duration funds. So you may commit capital today and have a re-up 18 months later. So it's a, it's a research intensive cycle. Um, and the drivers, a little bit like absolute return, the drivers of risk and return are esoteric and therefore manager selection is critical and staff's knowledge is critical. And you think about the types of recommendations we made over the last year, ranging from senior lending to non-sponsored uh, private equity or private companies to sponsored private or private equity backed companies, asset backed lending, life settlements, 
European MPLs, capital solutions, distressed debt, aviation finance. It's a broad, broad category that requires specialist knowledge. And we've done uh, uh, particularly there, done well there, in my opinion. And what is not seen, and this is true of all asset classes, is after we make a recommendation to invest, there's a long period of uh, legal negotiations. So we work closely with the city attorney's team in negotiating not only business terms, but legal terms. Uh, and you know, Eunice and her team have been vigilant in getting the best terms for SFERS, both in terms of mitigating risks, but also um, you know, improving our economics. And so I wanna make sure the board under, understands and acknowledge that to some sense. And, and uh, this program, SFERS private credit program has really become well-regarded, well-known within our industry. Uh, and for her efforts and for our efforts, Eunice has been recognized by the likes of Institutional Investor and the Milken Institute for her efforts in portfolio construction and manager selection. So a little bit of a, a promotion on my part. She won't do it. So, so. with that said, um, I'll skip to the agenda. Uh, I'll provide a brief overview of the program and review performance. Performance, uh, again, this is true, of, uh, will, will be true of our private market portfolios next month is through 1231 or through the end of the calendar year that we have some supplemental performance to the first quarter. Eunice will provide an overview of the portfolio and discuss recent activity and initiatives. And then Cambridge will close with some comments about the current private credit landscape. So briefly in 2022, you're well aware, it was a very, very difficult market in the public markets are both public, public equity and fixed income. We're down for reasons that we've discussed in the past. Uh, but private credit was a positive contributor to the plan in 2022, uh, returning about five and a half percent. As I noted, we started from basically zero in 2017, maybe a little bit more than zero, but uh, this portfolio has grown to about 7.7% of Spurs uh, NAV towards a goal of 10%, which I'll talk about in a little while. That's up from just five and a half percent at the end of 2021. So we've we've it's been difficult, a bit of a treadmill to get it up to 10%. And as uh, both Eunice and Richard will describe with the reset in interest rates, it has become private credit, the opportunities of private credit have become really, really attractive and we'll talk more about that. We, I noted we adopted the asset class formally in 2017. However, we had been doing a little bit of private credit type investing in our fixed income portfolio. So our track record goes back to 2008, but I would acknowledge that the, the amount of capital that we, we we had committed to those opportunities was quite small. Uh, again, the purpose of this, the uh, private credit was, the advantages here, or what we we're trying to take advantage of was the de-risking of the banking system. Again, uh, banks worldwide were uh, traditional providers of credit to companies, consumers, um, and governments as well. All of that or much of that type of risk taking has been replaced by private cap pools of capital, thus the, the private credit asset class. At, at the end of December, uh, we had about 7.7% of the, of the portfolio, of SFERS portfolio committed to private credit. In order for us to get to that 10% goal, or target rather, we expect to allocate or commit about approximately 850 million annually to get to that 10%. Program has performed well, producing a, a, an IRR just below 10% and a multiple of 1.2 times. Just spend a little bit of time on, on specific objectives. We'll do that and remind the board here of what we're trying to achieve within private credit. We're looking to achieve returns that are, you know, superior is a tough word, but greater than 
uh, what we can get in the liquid credit markets, perhaps three to four percent over the liquid credit markets. In absolute return, we're seeking a return of somewhere between eight and ten percent, with an emphasis on returns that are generated by yield or or cash ultimately, and a little bit less focus on capital appreciation. Our benchmark here is a combination of liquid markets, fifty percent bank loans, fifty percent high yield, plus a premium of one point five percent. So again, a blended benchmark of liquid market um, or high yield and, and bank loan indices plus 150 basis points. I'll make reference to this uh, a couple of times as we get a little bit further. Um, observations and belief, this is a new market, even though uh, the GFC happened several years ago, it's really become a prominent market. There's a lot of institutional capital being poured into private credit. Manager selection is key, and we're, we're going to, Richard will talk about this with a rise in interest rates. There's going to be pressure placed on private credit and manager selection and, and manager's ability to work out uh, and underwrite and work out certain situations is going to be critical. Um, again, diversification is critical. As is true with uh, throughout SVR's portfolio, the private credit team emphasizes bottom up manager selection while being mindful of. of uh, diversification by strategy, geography, vintage year, and, and relationship. We divide the portfolio into three broad categories, capital preservation, which includes senior debt and mezzanine strategies, opportunistic, which credit opportunity strategies, uh, specialty finance and real estate debt strategies, and return maximization strategies, which include distressed and special situations. Again, you see the target ranges. We currently have about 50% of the portfolio in capital preservation strategies, a third, if you will, in opportunistic, and about 15, 16% in the return maximization category. In terms of structure, the core of our portfolio, or a lot of what we've done, is allocated into two what we're calling separate, separately managed account. These are strategic relationships, one with Aries. One with HPS, Eunice will, will provide an update on these uh, later on in the presentation. And we surround them at any one point in time with somewhere between 20 to 25 active what GP relationships. And again, they represent a spectrum of strategies that I described earlier. Uh, we've noted here a future SMA. There's no particular timetable here. We're quite pleased with what we have with Aries and HPS. We'll take our time in, in advancing another separate account, uh, but nothing, nothing imminent there. going to go into details here. We can do that at a different time, or if you want to press or talk to Cambridge about it. But again, there's this is visually describes our thinking about pacing going forward in order to get us from 7.7% to a steady state of 10% by committing around $850 million annually. We'll get us to 20, 10% at approximately 2025. Over our history, we've committed about $5.3 billion to 94 funds managed by 10 managers. Uh, importantly, that, uh, that th th those allocations have, have grown uh, or have earned us. Sorry, I've lost my, my, my place here. Um, so I'm sorry, of the 5.3 billion committed, approximately 3.9 billion has been invested. And that portfolio has uh, generated a multiple of 1.2 times by generating a net value for the plan of approximately $876 million. 
I'm going to pause here and, and provide some sort of technical commentary before we get to performance. When, when we, the most conventional way for us to describe performance to the board or to others is to present what are compounded uh, rates of return over a period of time, one year, three year, five year. We refer to these, and, and Commissioner Driscoll, I think you referenced them earlier, as time-weighted returns. And this approach works well for the plan as a whole and it works well for public managers or public public markets managers where you give them capital on day on a particular day and you can measure its growth over a period of time. We do that in private markets as well, but private market performance calculations or measurement is a little bit more nuanced uh, because the manager controls the cash flow. We can make a commitment today and that manager will call that capital over a period of time and they will distribute capital back to us over the same period of time. So during the course of any private markets life cycle, we are calling capital, distributing capital. So performance measurement for private markets is a little bit more nuanced. So we do a couple of things. We do something called a public market equivalent analysis, where we take those cash flows that are called or distributed and, and uh, invest them, if you will, in that blended benchmark that I described earlier, 50% high yield, 50% bank loans. That way you get a pure cash flow equivalent uh, performance measurement uh, uh, relative to the public markets. Secondly, we do something called an internal rate of return, which an it, it's an annualized implied discount rate where you calculate those cash flows back. My, my, my purpose of mentioning this to you isn't to confuse you. We can talk about the methods. Uh, in fact, there are certain staff members who can do these calculations in their head. I'm, can, I'm certain that Wilshire can help you understand the nuances between or among these uh, forms of performance measurement. The reason I wanted to bring it up is that we are presenting performance in all different ways this year. It, was, it sort of evolved this a little bit so that you have a perspective, uh, a variety of perspectives about performance. And in private credit in particular, we've done extraordinarily well. So the first table that I'm showing here shows our performance on a time-weighted basis, again, again, against that blended benchmark. And as you'll see, the difference here between our credit portfolio and the blended benchmark, we've had substantial performance for all measurable time or time periods. And similarly down below is this uh, comparison of PMEs, which again is that uh, public market equivalent. The data looks similar, which isn't surprising, but you can see that relative to that benchmark of ours, we've consistently outperformed by a pretty sizable magnitude. In the plan context, and I noted this earlier, why the plan and markets in general in 2022 struggled Private credit has been a positive contributor to the overall plan's uh, uh, performance. As you can see, over the last one year, this was as of 1231, positive contributor to plan performance when the plan was down. And, and notably, the return from private credit actually has been commensurate with the plan's returns over the last three, five, and, and 10 years. This is an important slide or becomes increasingly uh, important over time, in my opinion, which is, again, we have a choice. We can invest in public markets. Uh, we've made a choice to uh, allocate to the private markets or private credit in particular in lieu of liquid markets. You can see that relative to this PME benchmark, SPURS has added uh, more than $470 million of value. So that's, that's sort of evidence and justification for the decision to invest in private credit perhaps over liquid credit. That's a $470 million difference over a relatively short time period. Next, these are IRRs. We're going to show our performance relative to Cambridge's 
benchmarks, not only for private credit generally, but the various sub-strategies that we uh, described earlier. I won't go through these, you can read these on your own, but what you'll see is that we have consistently outperformed relative benchmarks, um, both at, sub at the sub-strategy level and over multiple time periods. A little bit of a busy slide, but all sub-strategies uh, appreciated over the year, led by capital appreciation, followed by distress in special situations. Um, but however, if you look and, and gaze to the right over longer time periods, you can see that we've had positive performance, strong performance, each of the segments of the private credit portfolio. So what follows slides 18 and 19, I'm not gonna cover, but we felt compelled to giving an update, focusing on December numbers and providing this update in July. We'd had some uh, uh, estimated returns for the first quarter. Um, in, in my view, uh, one quarter's worth of returns aren't that relevant for a, uh, a private market asset class. Uh, but you can see over over longer periods, uh, one year, three year, five year, et cetera, this portfolio continues to do well. So I'll pause to see if there's any questions there in terms of uh, objectives, history, performance, and if not, then I'll hand it over to Eunice to talk a little bit more about the portfolio. One question, I know this is all off market, but if you had to come up with a credit rating. Commissioner, your microphone is off. All right, thank you. What credit rating would you basically assess to the whole, all our holdings across the 40 managers and 50 funds and 10,000 companies? I mean, that's tough to give a straight answer. Oh. Sorry, um, it's tough to give a straight answer for the direct lending portion, I think. A B, double B equivalent, maybe, maybe, yeah, yeah, it depends, right? It's really hard. And then if you consider them the distressed allocation as we could try to maybe work through that, but it's. I'm just trying to think how much of it. The risk. How the return versus the benchmark relates to maybe we take more credit risk than was in the benchmark. That's right. Trying to drive that. Yeah. So. I think it's a fair assumption that we are taking more credit risk because these are not, you know, these companies are not rated, right? And they're private, but but then we get the protections through the documents, right? And so that's the mitigant to that, right? Um, okay, you ask a very nuanced question because the, these companies are, in many cases, are private, so therefore not, not necessarily rated. And you could perceive them perhaps being more risky, but as Eunice noted, the, the covenants around these documents are actually much stronger than what you'd get in the public market. So it's perhaps riskier companies, but but less risky in terms of structure. I don't know sure if you want to ask. It's the underwriting we're paying for. Anyway, thank you for the answer. Okay. Um, okay, so we'll start at 21. Um, okay, thanks, Kurt, and good afternoon, commissioners. Um, so I'll provide an update on the current portfolio, including exposures and recent activity, and then we'll wrap it up with our initiatives for the year before we hand it off to Richard from Cambridge. Um, so if we begin on slide 21, uh, this slide, um, as you've all seen before, um, shows the portfolio's exposures by substrategy on both a NAV and total exposure basis. Um, from these two charts, you can see um, pretty much the allocations to our three primary strategy buckets are well diversified and in line with our target allocations, which was, which are shown on the portfolio construction slide earlier. Um, in addition, as we have stated several times before, diversification is your friend, especially within a credit program. And it really can be used as a tool to provide downside protection to a portfolio. Uh, we do strive to remain disciplined and thoughtful about this, um, including being thoughtful about the portfolio's exposures as we deploy capital um, each year. 
Then moving on to the next slide on 22, um, the chart on the left illustrates the portfolio's exposures by the three primary strategies on a NAV and total exposure basis versus the Cambridge Associates private credit benchmark. Here, the total exposures will include um, or does include unfunded commitments through May of this year. Um, and then when you look at the chart on the left, you can see um, from the third column, especially that our portfolio has an overweight to capital preservation strategies and an underweight to opportunistic and return maximization strategies relative to the Cambridge benchmark. This is intentional given the allocation to private credit was essentially funded by our prior fixed income allocation. And therefore we do try to be mindful of the role of the program, including the amount of risk that we take. Um, and then if you consider the portfolio's outperformance relative to the Cambridge benchmark, which um, Kurt discussed earlier on slide 19, this does then suggests at the manager level that our portfolio is taking lower risk, given that again, we have more exposure to performing senior debt opportunities while still then outperforming the Cambridge private credit benchmark. Um, then the graph on the right illustrates that return maximization strategies have been the biggest driver of performance, while capital preservation, uh, a recent performance, I'm sorry, while capital preservation strategies has been the strongest driver of performance over the 10 year and since inception periods. Um, then moving to slide 23, this shows the portfolio's exposures and performance by geography. From the chart on the left, you can see that our portfolio has an overweight to global strategies and, an, and as well as to Asia and an underweight to dedicated Europe strategies relative to the Cambridge private credit benchmark. Um, we do think it's important to note that we did run the analysis on a look through a portfolio company basis. And it is worth noting that our exposure to Europe is actually um, about 16% based on that um, analysis. Um, and a lot of that's coming from the global exposure. Um, and then in addition from the graph on the right, you can see that the glo that global strategies has been the dominant performer across all periods. Asia more recently has been an underperformer. Um, however, until recently, Asia had been the strongest performer. And I think this highlights the importance of diversification. Um, then moving to slide 24, this shows the evolution of the private credit portfolio by substrategy and geography over time. This is a five-year look back. Um, the key takeaway here is that the portfolio originally had a large overweight to distressed and MES, which is primarily driven by the transfer of the legacy credit investments from private equity to private credit. In 2017, we built out um, the allocation. Um, however, given the role of our fixed, or, I'm sorry, our private credit program and our objectives of providing superior risk-adjusted returns, especially relative to fixed income, as well as diversification to the broader plan. We have now a higher allocation to direct lending and a lower allocation to distressed and MES. Um, then moving on to the next slide on 25, this shows the portfolios, industry exposures on top, and then the private versus public exposures at the portfolio company um, level on the bottom. Um, the key takeaway here is that the portfolio is intentionally well diversified as we do not look to often take sector risk. And we believe that this is additive to the broader plan, um, especially given that our private equity and our public equity portfolios do tend to take more sector risk there. Um, finally, as we'd expect, given that this is a private credit portfolio, the predominant exposure is to private companies. Um, but this also speaks to the growing number of take private transactions that we are seeing on the direct lending side. Um, and then, however, um, I think the other thing to note too is that obviously um, the public co company exposure is also low, but if we continue to see more market volatility and spread winding, and we potentially enter a distress cycle, we could see this public exposure pick up through our distressed investments. Um, then moving on to slides 26 and 27, these two slides provide an update on our two separate accounts. As you all know, um, the first one is with Aries, um, which is shown on slide 26, 
who is predominantly focused on sponsored direct lending. Meanwhile, slide 27 provides an overview of our HPS separate account, which is predominantly focused on non-sponsored direct lending. Um, the punchline here is that performance for both separate accounts is strong, and we expect these portfolios to benefit in the current rising rate environment, um, given their focus on flo floating rate loans. However, we do continue to monitor these separate accounts very closely, um, especially as we continue to see rates rise further. Also, as most of you may recall, our separate accounts incorporate more stringent and customized investment guidelines, and the purpose of this is to provide additional downside protection to these investments, especially considering their size and their role within the program. Um, I think it's also worth noting that we do monitor the impacts of these guidelines relative to each manager's respective commingle fund to see if our separate accounts are affected by potential adverse selection. The answer here is no. In fact, our separate accounts, you know, continue to have lower leverage ratios and higher interest coverage ratios relative to their respective commingle funds, which should then help protect the portfolios in the current um, environment. Um, further, both separate accounts also include an overflow co-investment sleeve that further benefits our investments by lowering the blended fees, or providing, oh, I'm sorry, overall lower blended fees. Um, and it's also worth noting too, that the co-invest sleeves also incorporate our stricter guidelines. And once again, to provide additional downside protection. Um, then to move on to our recent activity, um, which is on slide 29. Thanks, Kurt. Um, okay, so you can see from slide 29, this shows the portfolio's cash flow since inception. Um, as our commitments have increased with the buildup of the program, we of course have seen an acceleration of capital call activity. With that said, though, I do think it's worth noting that even though we are still cash flow negative, the program's distributions have also picked up illustrating how much income a lot of our investments generate, which we believe is valuable today. Um, then moving on to slide 30, this summarizes our activities over the last year. Um, the big um, note of note, as Kurt noted earlier, is that the total plans allocation to private credit increased by 200 base, 220 basis points to 7.7% from the 5.5% allocation at the end of 2021. Um, 2022 was a busy year for us. The portfolio made 12 investments representing 930 million of total commitments. This included investments with 10 managers, including um, with three new managers. We also hired Henry Toothman as an investment officer in February of this year. Henry will be more focused on assisting us with the monitoring efforts of our existing portfolio, as well as assisting both Brady and me with diligence on our new investments. Uh, further, the bottom portion of the slide shows the total capital call and distribution amounts. And as Kurt noted earlier, the, uh, the portfolio experienced over 100 million in total net appreciation, which is obviously demonstrated through the performance um, Kurt discussed earlier. Then moving on to slide 31, um, this shows the incorporation of ESG into our diligence process. We do work with the ESG team, including Andrew, on each and every single one of our investments. And we also continue to work with them as necessary on our existing investments. Um, okay, this leads us to the initiatives um, for the portfolio for 2023. Um, I don't wanna steal too much of Richard's presentation, which is going to follow ours shortly, but I think the big thing to start with is that the market dynamics have certainly changed. Um, obviously the biggest change has, that we've seen has been a meaningful increase in higher interest rates which has subsequently resulted then in the fall of regional banks, but has also led then to the pullback of banks and the capital markets. So therefore liquidity has certainly tightened in the market. This and therefore creates a lot of opportunities for alternative sources of capital like private credit. Um, this has also then led to an improvement in terms, including pricing, which I know Richard will discuss shortly. But with that said, there is still a lot of market uncertainty and as interest rates continue to move higher, it's possible that we naturally could see a potential increase in defaults. 
Um, so with that said, our pipeline budget has been set at 850 million and we expect to come close to this for the calendar year. Um, to date, we've received approval um, for seven investments totaling 430 million. We continue to evaluate new opportunities that are being driven by the current um, environment. Um, as Kurt noted earlier, um, alignment is very important to us today, especially in the current environment. And it's something we continue to strive for from prospective managers. Um, in addition, we have always been focused on relative value and risk adjusted returns, but we do believe that this is very much important today. And what does this mean? Um, this means that with higher interest rates, we don't have to extend ourselves now as much on the risk spectrum. And for the first time now in over a decade, we can look to, we can afford to de-risk and where possible. And what does that mean? That means looking to reduce leverage potentially in our separate accounts, focusing on more opportunities that are higher up in the cap structure, as well as reducing the amount of jurisdictional risk among other factors. Um, with that said though, we continue to maintain emphasis on portfolio construction. As I've noted earlier, diversification is your friend. I think it especially remains key during periods of market uncertainty like today. Um, in addition, we look to build and maintain a portfolio that will generate attractive risk adjusted returns over a full market cycle. Um, strategies like credit opportunities and distress can benefit during more volatile periods. So this will likely be a theme for us, uh, continue to be a theme for us over the next year. Um, real estate debt is another opportunity set that we continue to monitor closely and may look to add capital to. Um, and then more broadly, I would expect corporate credit, including direct lending, to be a larger theme over the next year. Uh, over the next year. As you may recall, over the past several years, we've been looking to diversify away from corporate credit, given increasing concerns about leverage in weak terms and not feeling that the returns were attractive enough from a risk-adjusted basis and therefore invested in more specialty finance opportunities. But we're going to start to pivot now um, and look to deploy more capital and corporate credit because obviously with the pullback with liquidity in the markets. Um, this could include then therefore providing, or I'm sorry, adding additional capital to our separate accounts. Um, furthermore, we continue to look to improve and expand our monitoring our monitoring efforts, and this comes obviously again with the hiring of Henry, um, and this will also include the utilization of our new CRM system. And then lastly, we'll continue to work with the rest of this first team and our consultants on both initial dil diligence and ongoing monitoring. Um, with that said, I guess we can turn it over to Richard. Unless there are questions. Yeah, before we turn it over to talk a little bit about the environment, any questions regarding the portfolio? composition or initiatives? I did have one. I, I noticed on 26, 27, just some of the where geographic exposure we have, largely North America, Europe, and some others. Can you give us some of your thoughts about opportunity or yeah. one of the reasons why we sort of relegated to that area? And if you have thoughts about yeah. opportunity about expanding elsewhere? Yeah, so for 26 and 27, just wanted to clarify, these are for our separate accounts, right? And so that is intentional um, because we do want to limit potential FX risk, right? And so therefore, they are going to be focused on more North American opportunities. But I think it is worth noting because we're always assessing the relative value between the U.S. and Europe. Um, right now, just given where interest rates are in the U.S., um, we, and along with our two separate account managers, are focused more on the U.S. or, um, but like I said, we'll, we're monitoring, you know, the rate movement in Europe, um, especially if the Fed does does pause here and the ECB continues to rise, then we could look to pivot and potentially add more Europe, even outside of these separate accounts as well. Hope that answers. Great. Well, Richard, we'll turn it over to you, and and I guess either I can control the slides or you're, you're welcome to put yours up if 
how we want to do it. Yeah, I may have you, uh, Kurt, uh, control the slides. Um, so, uh, well, good afternoon, commissioners. Uh, really just picking up off of what um, Kurt and Eunice have already presented, uh, your private credit portfolio continues to perform very well and we believe is uh, really well positioned for the current environment and is for, for what may be headed our way over the next 12 to 24 months. So hopefully the, uh, the market slides that I'll walk you through uh, will draw out why we think it is so well positioned. Uh, I'd say first off to put some more context around um, the environment, uh, the performance data uh, with the exception of those couple of slides that, that Kurt alluded to for Q1 uh, are as of uh, December of last year. So a bit of a lag, but what that performance has captured is one of the steepest rate rise environments over a roughly nine month period. So as a quick reminder uh, and being specific on the rates that matter really to the private credit market or the corporate floating rate market in general, you're focused on SOFR rates and specifically one month and three months SOFR rates. Uh, and those went from uh, in early 22, a zero rate environment to above three and a half percent by year end. Fast forward to today, and the one month and three month SOFR rates are around 5.3%. So a significant further increase since year end. Uh, obviously, now there's a broader debate as to where things are headed from here. We don't tend to forecast rates. We don't publish anything along those lines. But really just looking at market forward curves, those rates are expected to stay around current levels through year in 23 and then to migrate lower in 2024 to slightly below 4% by year end. So if you take those forward curves at face value, the next 18 months from this point going forward are expected to carry a higher cash interest burden for borrowers than the prior 18 months getting us to where we are today. And obviously there's been a lot of um, strain on certain borrowers already to date. So I think you know, that's a, a meaningful point to make and that will create many opportunities within performing cri private credit as well as uh, within opportunistic and distressed private credit. Uh, and we again think your portfolio being weighted roughly 50% to senior secured uh, corporate lending uh, and then the, the remainder spread amongst specialty finance uh, and more opportunistic and, and distressed strategies is well balanced um, to take advantage of, of the current market. So now turning specifically to slide, slide 47, there's a lot of content here. I won't go through every data point and I'll uh, skip over some sections and perhaps even slides just in the interest of time. But, you know, as, as Kurt and Eunice have already articulated, you know, that base rate increase makes private credit, which is really a floating rate asset class predominantly, or any floating rate asset, uh, uh, credit asset class, um, more attractive relative to, to others. Uh, and so that has made um, uh, this asset class increasingly attractive in today's environment. But what we tend to focus on is really what implications does that um, rate increase have? And so really on, on this slide, one of the big ones or one of the big themes is leverage. If you're structuring a deal today, you're structuring that deal with lower leverage or lower debt because you know uh, what your cash interest burden is per turn of leverage. So what we're seeing is the amount of leverage uh, as a ratio to EBITDA has come down. 
and so your yield per turn of leverage uh, has gone up. So that's happening for newly structured deals. It's also happening for deals that were structured in a zero rate environment. And so there's very different dynamics for borrowers uh, in those two. And we'll unpack that a little bit. The one that I think, though, is more meaningful and the trend that we've seen, and it's more meaningful because it's more sustainable in your portfolio, and that is improved pricing in terms. You know, as Curtin Eunice alluded to, private credit has been an attractive space, partly because not just pricing, but the terms have been that much better than, than, than the public markets. And what we saw through the course of really the, the back half of 22 and into 23 is increased spread. Uh, per turn of leverage. So that's a metric that we focus on and improve terms. And when we're talking about terms, we're talking about loan documentation. You know, loan documents are not uniform agreements. Um, there's a lot of variance from one contract to another based on the borrower. Uh, and what, what we've been seeing is that those loan documents have tightened up even more to the lender's benefit or to the investor's benefit uh, really over the last 12 months. So that's a notable uh, uh, point for, you know, considering where we're at within this asset class. And then default rates, I'll touch on this further. You know, default rates are really, recall, a, a lagging indicator. Um, so default rates actually are still below historical averages. Uh, leveraged loan and high yield blended default rates at the end of June reached around 2.8% based on JP Morgan data. The long-term average is about 3.2%. Um, you did see uh, an, an increase in Q2. So we are seeing uh, some spikes there. And again, we'll touch on that a little bit further. I think on slide 48, the only comment I would make on, on this slide is within that opportunistic and distressed opportunities, uh, obviously we're highly conscious of uh, increasing defaults, uh, how they may affect your performing credit uh, portfolio. Um, but we also look at the opportunity set that that creates. And again, you know, the, the market segment that, that we think strongly loses out here isn't the private credit market, it's the public credit market, and specifically the leveraged loan market. We believe that you don't even need to have a recession, one, for there to be increased defaults, but two, even if you don't have significant increases in defaults, uh, we think there are plenty of opportunities where private credit managers that are within your portfolio today will work alongside borrowers to structure very attractive risk reward investments that frankly will be uh, at the cost of some of the public lend lenders that are already in those capital structures. If we go forward to slide 49, we have a few slides here just to speak to the private credit market. So this slide is looking at global high yield global bank loans or leveraged loans uh, and global direct lending. And what really jumps off the page in green is that increase in direct lending. And remember, direct lending is just one subset of, of private credit, but it's the fastest growing and it's the, and it's the largest segment. We chose 2010 purposely, that was right on the heels of the financial crisis. And to Kurt's point earlier, it was really an accelerant with increased bank regulations for, for the uh, capital formation away from the banking sector. So you see that, that 2% to 13% uh, in private credit's relevance has grown significantly uh, on a global basis. The other thing, though, I would focus you on on this slide is, is the size of those pies or, or circles. 2010, you add, add those three components up. That's a $1.9 trillion market. 
2022 was a $4.6 trillion market. So leverage loans and high yield also grew significantly. And that gray, light gray being uh, bank loans or leverage loans, dark gray being high yield, tends to be the raw material for future private credit opportunity, whether it's refinancing in more of the performing credit side of things or opportunistic or in distress to the extent some of these capital structures um, are, are, are uh, going through a transition. 40, uh, if we go to the next slide, um, that, those were global pies. Um, really though, it's being driven, especially on the direct lending side uh, in North America and Europe. I think there's a perception that uh, direct lending is even more so a, a US uh, uh, phenomenon. And I think that uh, that chart on the right shows that you know Europe has grown uh, really in lockstep with the US. And this is relevant or, or relative to liquid markets. You can see Europe is actually, private credit is taking a, a bigger share. Uh, that being said, Europe is still a more heavily banked market. Uh, so that's, that's worth considering in those charts. But you can see that the growth has been really across geography. And then if we go forward um, to the next slide, I won't comment too much here, but this is really, again, I think to some of Kurt's uh, uh, commentary, this is really what created and has been the pitch for direct lending for the past decade. And that is bank consolidation uh, in the US. And with bank consolidation, as banks uh, have grown, um, the borrower size that they're looking to lend to has grown. And that's really vacated portions of the market in the US and, and pushed some of that capital formation out of the banking sector. We see no reason why that trend doesn't continue. And in fact, what we saw in Q1 into Q2 with the regional bank crisis, that's probably only again, a further accelerant to this trend. And, it, and just to that point on the next slide, um, this is FDIC data from last year. That bar furthest to the right is 2022. What this is showing you, and this is across all US banks, not just regional banks, it's showing you the mark to market, so to speak, losses. Now the dark gray is available for sales securities. Those are mark to market on a bank's balance sheet. You'll see that on a bank's book equity. The light gray held to maturity, that is not mark to market on a bank's balance sheet, but they still have to provide information to the regulator. So that would be uh, losses that a bank would incur if they were a for seller, hence why uh, the federal government put in place uh, after the three bank failures um, mechanics to uh, hopefully prevent further bank runs to the extent depositors uh, leave the system. But uh, it really just stands out as to, um, you know, the embedded losses that sit on bank balance sheets. And even if those losses are never crystallized and held to maturity, it really affects what banks are going to do in terms of you know, what business lines they're going to lean into and pull, put that all together. We think there's a lot of wind in the sails for private credit to continue to grow. And the next slide speaks to that a little bit further. This just shows you on the left private equity and it shows the, um, the dry powder within private equity. You know, private equity backed companies uh, are the largest users of, of performing private credit. Uh, and we think that um, there will continue to be a lot of demand that will meet uh, the supply that's coming into the market given how much this uh, asset class is growing. The next few slides really speak to 
a little bit more on the um, the the liquid markets and the in the secondary markets and default rates. I'll try to you know blow through this one fairly quickly. Top right, we're looking at the leveraged loan or bank loan market. You can see spreads spiked higher uh, in early 22, and they've sort of flatlined for a while. Um, lower left, we're looking at pricing. The blue line on the lower left is high yield. That's a fixed rate market. So you can see that pricing was hurt uh, even more so than the floating rate uh, orange line, which is which is leveraged loans. And then just in terms of volumes, uh, M&A volumes are down, but what's uh, down as a portion of financing those even further uh, are the debt capital markets. They've picked up recently, uh, but certainly private credit is continuing to take share. Uh, the next slide, this really talks to direct lending and this, I'll, I'll spend just a few seconds on this. You know, the headlines are yields are up, debt multiples are down, equity contributions are up and covenants have improved. That's on what's being originated today. Um, and so a, a lot to like in the next slide, um, if we go there, similar messaging, I think this shows, um, you know, I think pretty succinctly. And, and this is, um, you know, really meant to be illustrative and talking to a lot of different managers uh, that we work with and that are in your portfolio. You can see from going from January 22 to March 23, first of all, that blue segment in the bars is your base rate. That's your SOFR. Um, through March, it was 4.5%. That's grown further. It's now 5.3. The gray is the spread, and you can see the increase there from left to right. Uh, again, that's the stickier component of your return. That may have compressed slightly uh, since since Q1, but is still wider than historical averages. And what you're seeing is unlevered yields of 10 to 12% plus for a product that is a 40-50% loan-to-value product um, with typically very strong equity owners. So there's a lot to like. Uh, and then I'll go through these next few few slides fairly quickly now. Um, this is historical default rates. As I said previously, uh, default rates spiked in, in Q2 a bit. Uh, you're still below historical averages. We expect default rates will continue to climb, um, but you're in nowhere near um, some of these other sort of default uh, rate spikes. Um, you know, again, we're not going to forecast where we think they'll go. I can tell you that you know, S&P had, or JP Morgan rather, had a 4% default rate target. Moody's had a, a higher sort of 5 to 6% was the latest I had seen. And if you take that and multiply that by the size of these markets, that would be a, a sizable default volume. And again, you have a, a good segment of your portfolio uh, would be set up to take advantage of some of those opportunities. Uh, and then if you move forward, I think... Um, 58, I won't comment too much other than the leveraged loan market. Credit quality has decreased over time. So we think that will be the market that feels the most pain. Uh, and then 59 and 60 just show you, we've been talking about default rates. Again, a lagging indicator. The chart on the left here on 59 and then also on 60 is what's deemed your distressed ratio. So that's a portion of the market that is trading beyond a certain uh, uh, in high yield, for example, a thousand basis points spread. So that would be considered trading at distress levels. That's around 10% of the market. It's flatlined. Uh, that, that certainly could go up. And what you take away from 59 and 62 is it's really spread across sectors. So that also speaks to why I think it's interesting 
to work with managers in different uh, regions. In the U.S., it's primarily healthcare, media, and services. If you go to 60, you'll see it's a lot of real estate, retail, capital goods. And then 61, just wrapping up, you know, we think your, porf your portfolio is well-positioned, it's well-balanced to take advantage of the uh, uh, capital formation and the deals that are being originated today in the performing credit side, and then to take advantage of the secondary market opportunity in the more opportunistic and distressed side of things. We do expect default rates to go up. We do expect that borrowers that sit within the private credit universe and sit specifically within your portfolio will not be immune. However, what I would tell you is the reason why private credit uh, we think is more attractive than public markets, uh, if you can afford the illiquidity, is there are better structured deals. And you've seen that historically. Um, default rates have been better within private credit, but even if they're not better, what you care about is recovery rates and those are better. And bottom line, we think even as defaults roll through your portfolio on a portfolio basis, the incremental yield that you're you're earning today will more than offset, uh, we think, the losses that may come through your portfolio if we do enter into a much higher default environment. Uh, and I will pause my comments there. Thank you, Richard. Questions or comments? Thanks, Frank. It's a great presentation. And commissioners, any questions, comments? I'm basically two sets of questions. First of all, I just want to reconcile page 13. I wouldn't want to reconcile to page 36, but let me make sure I understand the period covered on page 13 represent ending uh, 12, 31, 22. So on page 13, does that for those performance number for the close of December 31st, 2022? That's right, yeah. Okay. So then on, I'm just curious, then on 36, when you see the, the breakdown by sub-strategies, first of all, is each manager put in one strub, in a sub-strategy, or do you break down their holdings into the what you would consider the correct sub-strategy? At the manager level. By each manager. Okay, yes. that makes it simple. Um, obviously, certain sub-strategies are better than others versus the excess performance that you've achieved ahead of the benchmark, which is obviously very high. I'm just wondering, well, I was asking to try and do more, but the weighting in the sub-strategies, and I haven't got to the issue of the sectors yet, but are the guidelines we have on you have made it, has prevented you from doing what you might be, would have considered superior sub-strategies? No, I don't. I mean, when you mean superior, you mean more higher returning? Is Basically. No, yeah, yeah. to me, yeah. it may always sound like I'm trying to chase return. I know it's risk adjusted return, right. but we should focus on. Right. And you're the one who analyzes that. I don't think it's our guidelines have prohibited us from pursuing what we think are attractive risk adjusted returning strategies. Right. Um, but that said, we're not going to look to extend ourselves on the risk spectrum, though. Right. So, for example, MES will be a component of the portfolio, but would it ever represent 50%? I don't think so. That's not, in our opinion, what we think would be 
beneficial for the program, just given our return target, right, and the role of the program, and it's and also then considering the allocation came from fixed income. Yeah, sometimes you don't know exactly where it's going to wind up. Okay, that's yeah. point. Two, um, I'm just curious. I know we're across many sectors and industries. I thought I saw the way it was listed in one area. Where is the aviation? Yeah. It's in specialty finance, or that's the sub-strategy categorization. The aviation, let me pull up that. I'd have to confirm that exactly with you, Commissioner Driscoll. My guess, though. Are you asking where is it? Might it might be in the other, but I have to go back to you. I know you have a few very clever ones you found, but that yeah. obviously aviation and transportation is what I was focusing on. Yeah. You have it under other. I think so, but let me come back to you to confirm. Okay. Well, thank you for the explanation. Uh, one of the questions I won't have to we do the quarterly review. What uh, was it, Mr. Grimm from Cambridge? Is that who is speaking? Yes, that's right. Uh, just underscore the point he made already in DC. A couple of delegates or representatives have already signed trying to raise the reserve requirement another two points, which is a huge step. So this private credit opportunity or the private credit work for you, Eunice, is not going to get smaller. Yeah, the opportunity is still there. Thank you. That's right. <laughs> still there. Any questions? Yes. Thanks. This is a great presentation. I know it's a lot to go through, and and we're sort of the after lunch phase. So I appreciate y'all uh, going, uh, taking your steps through this. Um, as I was listening, and even after uh, earlier when we were reviewing the materials, uh, it just. It has seen going back as long as I've been looking at at private credit for the SFers the great performance, and it just continues to do great. And now we're, uh, I guess we're almost at a point where we're relying on it to do great for the entire portfolio. And I, I guess the the part of my brain that I'm looking at is, well, is this sustainable? What happens when it isn't that? And everything that I've heard today it seems that there's more opportunity and then when i was looking okay well what if things go bad even at the end of the presentation we just had it seemed like like on the end of page 61 that sort of public policy has created an environment where we think that even some of the downside risks of things not going so well um that the the federal government or, or can step in and and uh continue to bolster this sort of area. I, I guess I'm trying to look for areas where this can go wrong because it's it's gone great so far. And and now we, we're getting to a point, I think, where we we need it to continue to go great for, uh, for liquidity and for returns for the portfolio. So I guess I'm trying to figure out what keeps y'all up at night. What, what, what's, where's the worry? Um, I'll start and then Richard, maybe if you wanna add to that. Um, I think for some of the conversations that we've had internally with Allison, it's been just the amount of capital going into the space. Um, we get a lot of calls from other investors who are looking to build allocations. And so there's a lot more demand. Um, but with that said, as Richard touched on, I think there's, especially with the pullback or the fall of the regional banks, right? And then even Basel IV coming out too, there's still going to be plenty of opportunities, right? But what I think is really important though is the manager selection, right? And really, especially on the direct lending side, which is always going to represent a significant portion of the program, 
making sure that we're with managers where they're really acutely focused on downside protection, right? And that is something we spend a lot of our time on with um, our managers, our existing managers in terms of the monitoring, right? Um, and I think when we were building out the program, I think it's worth noting, we had a lot of concerns about direct lending, just how much capital was going in there, as well as the pricing and the weak terms that we saw that were not attractive. And that's why we put in these really strict guidelines into our separate accounts. And it was meant to protect the portfolio during periods like this. And then that, therefore then with, while kind of preserving and managing the risks as much as we could on the direct lending side, looking then to get or outsized returns through these uh, fund investments, right? And then I think the other thing too I would add is that it's really important to build a portfolio that works in different environments, right? And that's something we're hyper-focused on and we spend a lot of time with Allison on too is, like I said earlier, the past several years, we've been diversifying away from corporate credit, right? Just given how frothy those markets were by doing a lot of specialty finance strategies, which are more labor intensive to underwrite, but we felt we're additive to the portfolio. But now we're at a point where we feel like we can now pivot back to corporate credit, but I know I'm kind of going on a tangent here, but Richard, I don't know if you want to add anything to that in terms of what keeps you up at night. Yeah, I would say uh, start with the fact that this is sub-investment grade credit. Um, the entire private credit universe is sub-investment grade credit. Um, obviously, the benchmark is also sub-investment grade credit, and that's that's why it was chosen. So if you do go through a dramatic recession or or dramatic downturn like the financial crisis, you know there there will be parts of this portfolio that that ultimately would get would get stressed. Having said that, um, one of the great benefits uh, of private credit is there is no asset liability mismatch. Uh, if nothing else, what the COVID dislocation showed is that you know these managers, some of whom do apply leverage um, to the portfolio, do it in a prudent way. It's not marked to market. Uh, it's a really a, a held for maturity, longer term perspective. So even in a highly stressed environment, um, you're structured to see through to the other side. Uh, and, and a lot of the focus too that Eunice didn't mention, but we talk about all the time, is when choosing those managers is ensuring we have managers who have historically and are well prepared to deal with um, uh, defaults. And to be able to step in and have good restructuring acumen and and teams in place. So, you know, I think you know eyes wide open. It, it's a, an asset class that we think will, in that environment, look favorable to many other asset classes. But it doesn't mean if you have a very dramatic downturn that it that it wouldn't wouldn't be stressed. Um, but uh, you know, as long as you're with the right managers, as long as you have a portfolio that is well diversified, uh, that can play offense when others are playing defense, i.e., you know, with the right opportunistic and distress managers to take advantage of dislocations. Um, you know, we think it's a, it is a ballast and will serve as a ballast to your portfolio. I guess I have a couple of comments there that are more, more existential. My, when we started, when I joined Spurs, this program was just beginning. And Eunice noted the pace at which she allocated capital last year. Was it 10, 12 recommendations uh, to build a high-quality portfolio? With the resources that we had, which was Eunice, we could not sustain that, that, um, that pace 
with the resources we've had. So that I were relieved and, and, and grateful for the board and your support that we've been able to broaden out that team. A big concern of ours and discussions that we had early on was can we sustain this pace to build the portfolio? We've addressed that. The other concern I have is um, you've acknowledged it's a great asset class for a pension plan. The returns are eight to 10%. The majority of that is yield. So a plan like ours that's maturing and we have greater needs for liquidity, we can earn a competitive return and get liquidity. Problem is every other pension plan in the world has recognized the same virtues of it. So there's, there's a lot of money flowing into private credit. I worry a little bit then, do the best managers reach some capacity and can we continue to build along with them? Fortunately, we're early. We have great relationships um, uh, you know, early on. So I think we've endeared ourselves and established ourselves. Capacity is gonna become a problem. The other thing I worry about is as interest rates rise, as particularly these floating rate instruments, that means that the cost of debt for a corporation is increasing at a time when their labor costs are increasing. There are going to be defaults. There's going to be problems here. It's great to earn a floating you know, uh, coupon, but at some point, some companies are gonna balk. There's gonna be restructurings. There's gonna be defaults. My worry here is that there are gonna be managers who don't perform well. And if there are some issues regarding defaults or seizures or what have you, will the regulators resist they're keeping their hands off of this. And, and so nothing to worry about, nothing to prevent, but we have to think about it. And as Eunice said several times, diversification is critical here. And that's why we're not 100% corporate. We have a variety of strategies here. It's an ideal strategy for a public pension plan, but there's a lot of money coming into it. So resources, money flowing in, then do the regulators do something stupid years down the road? Thank you. Manager Select. Part of that raises the question, is there a secondary market for private credit interest? There is. Ah, well, <laughs> then you should think about it. That's one. Tanya can help you. She knows that market. That's one. Two, if the mayor's got people over there who need work, tell them you can hire them. You can put them to work here. The learning curve is steep. Let me turn you. <laughs> Tenry will tell you, right? Sounds <laughs> good. Thank you. All right. Any other questions? None? Never team. Great presentation. Thank you. This is a discussion item. We'll have public comment, please. Uh, we have no in-person public comment on this item. A reminder to any callers to please press star three to be added to the queue. Moderator, are there any callers on the line? Hmm? Madam Secretary, there are no callers in the queue. Thank you. Hearing no calls, public comment is now closed. Okay. Um, we'll move on to the next item, please, Madam Secretary. Item number 14, Chief Investment Officer's Report. And again, we're, we're nearing the, the home stretch here. Um, so I will uh, hit the highlights here. Uh, as you've noticed and backed by popular demands, we've added in um, several slides uh, to provide a visual update of performance, but also provide some um, sentences in more paragraph form of uh, what's going on in the, at least the liquid capital markets. So we will continue to provide these. Um, I will preview that perhaps the, the quarters, uh, the meetings where we're covering quarterly performance, we go through this much more briefly since we'll, we, don't, we don't need to duplicate efforts there. Um, the key takeaways on these slides really are that we've had um, strong fiscal year-to-date performance, um, particularly from equity, a rebound 
uh, from the prior fiscal year. But what we're also seeing a bit, um, and I'm, if you want to look at the slide, uh, it's the first slide in, in my presentation, you're seeing a lag in, in private equity. This is sort of what we saw coming into this year when we saw uh, equity markets coming down and private equity still pretty high. This is level setting um, that, but all in all, um, what we're seeing for our estimated return, these are in no way near final numbers, uh, return of 3.9%. Uh, I think it's helpful to look at the three-year performance uh, given that sort of very rapid and significant market move that was covered in the fiscal year. And this tells the story that, that we'd like to see and want to see, which is that our total fund performance is 10.5% over the three years. Again, estimated that beats a 60-40 portfolio. Um, it beats a, a 60, uh, should be 60-30-10 uh, portfolio as well. And it certainly beats our long-term actuarial rate of return. Um, Again, I don't, I don't unless, unless you want me to, I wasn't going to go through the all the slides with some of the, the market uh, uh, commentary, but um, certainly the, we benefited from the rebound on the, the, the equity markets and are navigating through an inverted yield curve. Um, as I do every uh, month, I will now go through the... Um, deals that the board has approved and we have uh, closed and funded. Um, so at the board meeting on March 16th, 2023, the retirement board approved in closed session an investment of up to 75 million to Cerberus Levered Loan Opportunities Fund 5. Uh, Cerberus investment of 75 million to Cerberus Levered Loan Opportunities 5 closed on June 22nd, 2023, it's classified as a direct lending investment within the private credit portfolio. Next, Castle Lake Aviation 5 stable yield. At the board meeting June 16th, 2023, the board approved in closed session an investment of up to 75 million in Castle Lake Aviation 5 stable yield. The investment of 75 million in the fund closed on June 28th. This is classified as a global global specialty finance investment within our private credit portfolio. Third, Caprock Partners Industrial Value Add Fund 4. At the board meeting January 19, 2023, the board approved in closed session an investment of up to $60 million to Caprock Partners Industrial Value Add Fund 4. And uh, this first committed $55 million to the fund, and it closed on June 30th, 2023. That is classified as a real estate investment within the real assets portfolio. Finally, uh, Taurus Feeder 2 LP and Prism Feeder 2 LP fund at the June 15th, 2023 board meeting, the board approved in closed session an investment of up to $100 million in Taurus Feeder 2 and up to $50 million in Prism Feeder 2 um, through the uh, Absolute Return uh, Investors Safari 2 fund. That, uh, our investment of $50 million in Taurus Feeder 2 and a $25 million in Prism Feeder 2 closed on July 1. These investments are classified as quantitative and global macro investments within the absolute return portfolio. Um, I'm happy to uh, address in, in any detail that you want the slides that we have here or other topics. Those were the highlights that I was going to have one observation. Um, much like I mean, with pages where you spot the the total pension liability number at one point in time on that one chart, this one, versus the total assets, that one. Similar to that, 
going back to your performance chart where you have the three-year performance number, <laughs> the number that might be useful on that three-year chart and not, not on the one-year one, and if you want to add a five-year number, is the assumed rate of return average that ties. Again, not to use that as a bogey, but that's the number we have to watch. How realistic are we with our assumed rate of return? Well, there's the evidence. Yeah. Just a suggestion. Discussion. Any other questions? No questions. Kayla Allison, is there any public comment? Uh, we have no in person public comment on this item. Moderator, do we have any callers on the line? Madam Secretary, there are no callers in the queue. Thank you. Hearing no calls, public comment is now closed. Okay, let's call the next item. Last but not least. Item number 15, discussion item, San Francisco Deferred Compensation Plan Monthly Report. Thank you, Ms. Armanino. Can you hear me okay? Good afternoon, commissioners. Before we start, I, I wanted to thank Mr. Moy for providing the manager report in June. Um, my eight-year-old was representing the city and county of San Francisco's best baseball youth really? for the 10U as an all-star. So they were in the pony tournaments. They didn't make it. <laughs> they didn't make it to the International World Series, but us proud parents are relieved to no longer sit in double headers of 110 degrees. So that's why we were gone, but happy to be back. I uh, wanted to provide a quick update to the report that you received last month. As you know, plan and staff have been incredibly busy this year, particularly with the transition of our target date fund manager. I'm delighted to share that we have completed our negotiations with TRP with a signed contract. Thank you to city attorney uh, for her assistance in that. And our July 1st transition went successfully. Staff and Voya even worked over the weekend to ensure a smooth client experience. Participants who merged into the target date fund according to the age 65 retirement chart were given two notices, one informing them of the trade and the other of the future contributions. We had 119 participants opt out of this mapping in which 50% were safety personnel. Those folks opted to stay in or selected an earlier retirement age. This tells us that our message had resonated with our target audience as we had counselors proactively reaching out to police, fire, and sheriff, either via email, department announcements, and on-site visits to assist. To date, we have not received any complaints about the transition. I'd like to thank Voya for the quick implementation of the microsite, which streamlined the participant opt-out experience. The target date fund manager transition was also featured in the Q2 newsletter. It's been attached to your materials at the very end of your board packet. This newsletter might be our highest open rate to date with a 69% open rate, slightly besting last quarter's open rate of 66. That is unheard of. I don't think I've ever seen a 70% email open rate. Campaign Monitor, who tracks sort of trends, reports that the average email open rate is about 22% across all industries, with the highest ones being 27% for financial services and 29% for education. The takeaway here is that our participants are actively listening, and we continue to strive to provide information that is timely and helpful with their retirement planning. We've also been tracking the TDF website by T. Rowe Price, 
had about 718 unique users um, that accessed the site, spending around two and a half minutes each time. About 20% returned to the site to learn more on the Explore tab, which details the changes. And in August next month, we will provide you with the full overview of the Target Day Fund campaign as part of our quarterly SFDC plan review. Shifting to the investment side for Target Day Funds, all new underlying funds were added at close of business 630 at their full allocation within the respective sub-asset classes. All spring short duration bond and DFA inflation protected bond were fully liquidated at the close of 630. The later data funds, such as the vintages 2015 through 2065, will completely redeem at a high yield in emerging markets when they get their final equity allocation towards the end of September, with the other target funds reaching their target allocations by end of August. If there are no questions on targeted funds, I can move to stable value. Stable value, um, I'm happy to inform you that the QC crediting rate has jumped up 22 BIPs to 2.90%. This rate is guaranteed for the quarter and will reset in Q4. Stable value holds 1 billion in assets and is run by Galliard. Yields remain fairly flat this quarter, moving from 5.17% to 5.07 as the Fed moved just 25 bips. The market to book ratio for the portfolio was up slightly, 93 uh, from 93 to 93.9 and we continue to see strong market value performance at the underlying fixed income portfolio. Both the high underlying fixed income yields and the increase to MTB contributed to the increase in the crediting rate. We also have our investment consultant, Greg Ungerman from Calend here. He's more than welcome to answer any more questions you may have around stable value. But if not, commissioners, this summarizes my report. Um, we've also attached the activity report in the event there are any questions on the other investments for me or Mr. Ungerman, uh, plan demographics, money movement, or loans. Questions? Questions? Comments? Yes. One question. I just want to affirm something, an understanding I have. I do not know when the next deferred comp committee is, whether it's been scheduled or not. Yeah, so um, I was waiting for the board to approve the committee assignments. And that was today. And from there, I plan on to reach the committee chair to check her calendar to get a couple of dates. Okay, good. Because the item I'm really trying to focus on, which will uh, hopefully it'll be done before it gets the next committee meeting, is the review of the large cap equity managers because we're using them both in the core and the target date funds. Big numbers. We're certainly going to be reviewing the, the large cap growth and large cap value, but just to clarify for the target date funds, they just use the S&P 500 index, so not active management. Oh, I thought we had both the large cap core, two parts in there. If we don't, I, then I must have been reading the, the allocation. The, I mean, it's still a big number. Correct, correct. but in the target date funds, it's the S&P 500 only. Is, is the only large cap okay. U.S. Great. Growth. Thank you. Yes, but we are looking at August. Thank you. And we'll be sure to reach out to the committee members. Okay. Everybody's good. Okay. This is, um, I don't think this is an action item. No. So um, let's do. Oh, 
Thank you. We yeah. accept the report. We have no in-person public comment on this item. Moderator, are there any callers on the line? Madam Secretary, there are no callers in the queue. Thank you. Hearing no calls, public comment is now closed. Okay. Let's go to the next item. Item number 16, discussion item. Retirement board member, good at the order. Anybody have it? No. Okay. Uh, item 17, adjournment. Public comment on the go to the order, please. We have no in-person public comment on this item. Moderator, are there any callers on the line? Madam Secretary, there are no callers in your queue. Thank you. Hearing no calls, public comment is now closed. Okay. We're move motion to adjourn. Well, we don't need a motion to adjourn. Just we're adjourned. No, I'm not a gavel guy, but if you want me to be a gavel, Thank you. Thank you.